Well, it's November, and you know what that means. It's that time of year where we say, well, it's November. You know what that means. It's Star Wars trailer season. New listeners refer to previous November episodes to understand what's about to happen. We sincerely apologize, but we're bound by the laws of Valley Meekly mythology, which we impose upon ourselves. November? More like no trailer. What are you punning about? I mean, it's November. There's no Star Wars trailer. What the Mustafar? Again, we apologize for what's happening, but we warned you. You know what? There's been so many Star Wars movies lately, I don't even care anymore. I miss the anticipation. I miss the days when you had to wait 13 years between Star Wars trailers. I could have been born and had a bar mitzvah in the time between Star Wars trailers back then. And yes, I was, and yes, I did, and yes, my bar mitzvah was Star Wars trailer themed. Even if one came out by the end of this intro, I wouldn't care. (gasps) Was that my phone? No, I hiccuped because I drink. It's a cry for help. Oh, I thought it was my phone. You hiccuping is my ringtone because you do it so much. You know what? I'm done. Really? You mean like you're done with big budget action movies or are you just done with Star Wars? I'm done with everything that's out there. The only thing that could pull me back in would be another Disney-owned multiverse that takes place often in space. Oh? Hey, audience, come over here for a second. If I can get him interested in the Avengers, then we don't have to talk about Star Wars anymore. And then we could talk about the Avengers, which is what I like. What are you doing over there? So we both agree that this is a good idea, right? Check your phone if you agree. We can feel it. We live in there. Okay, let's rejoin the scene. At casual. Hey, have you heard of the Avengers before? No, I live under a rock. Are you being sarcastic? No, I live in Saudi Arabia. Ever read a map? Oh, it's great. You'll love it. There's Tony Stark. They call him the Iron Man. I'll put it in terms that you can understand. He's the Han Solo of the Avengers. He's a sarcastic know-it-all in it for the glory. Then there's Ant-Man. He's an outlaw with a heart, always running from cops and criminals. I guess you could say he's a Han Solo type. And then there's Rocket Raccoon. He's the Han Solo of the group. Him and Groot, he's a tree. They have a sort of Han and Chewy relationship. Now, Groot, he's a strong and silent type. I guess you could say he's a Flora Han Solo. Is this just a whole universe of Han Solo knockoffs? Yeah, that's why I like it. And then there's Chris Pratt. But he's the Han Solo from Jurassic World. Yeah, I like him in all multiverses. I don't know. This all sounds confusing. There's so many characters. I feel like I'd have to start at the beginning, but people will tell me that I don't. But then when I don't, I have no idea what's happening. This just feels like homework that I have to pay to do because it's just a big cash grab. That's not like Star Wars at all. Well, the movie crossovers is just replicating the way old Marvel comic storylines would interact. So it's just like honoring a time-tested tradition in a new medium. Yeah, I guess. You seem fastidious about storylines. We like that in the Marvel Universe. You mean obsessive fans who freak out over the slightest change are celebrated in your world? Yes, we embrace it. So it's good to be angry? Let it flow through you. Bitterness is an advantage. I can be possessive and demanding of a story I contribute nothing to and be recognized as the diehard fan that I am? Yes. Join me in my living room and together we will watch the Captain Marvel trailer. Unlimited spin-offs. Wait a minute, you're trying to seduce me to the Marvel Cinematic Universe! I'll never join you and your all-star cast of sexy stars! No thank you, I have Mark Hamill! Taika Waititi directed Thor Ragnarok. Dear Lord, take me. I look forward to completing your training. In time, you will call me Captain America. <gasps> Ooh, a text message! The Star Wars trailer's out! Episode 9, Return of the Porgs! Ooh. Mr. America, I don't feel so good. Oh, God.
one. You got it. Thank you. Hey, I'm Greg here. Help him. Help him to. Yeah, you are Greg. <laughs> That's how Greg help talks. Help him to. Wait, can you edit this? <laughs> help him to L.A. Sleepily. <laughs> I'm Daniel. Hi, I'm Daniel. Don't touch that. Don't move. Don't move. It's gonna ruin the recording. Don't move. Maybe if some people listen to my no moving rule. There's an old man looking at us. He doesn't get it. <laughs> you guys he doing likes, ham radios in there? He likes to move. <laughs> he likes to move it, move it. That's that guy. So welcome to episode 59. Welcome. There's people watching us from outside the door, apparently. Yeah, from the sidewalk, because we record now in those little glass windows yeah. on the display, like we're, Mike Shea saw. Wait, where, when was that? You were at the Doodal Parade, and he saw you oh, in the right. window yeah, of the saying, record shop. He's I like, was, can I buy it, Daniel? Halloween's in my head, and mm-hmm. I'm scared of people looking at me through windows now. Yeah, I saw the original Halloween at Senespia this weekend, and there was a part of that always gets me is when Lori Strode has her back and she just seen all her friends dead in cartoonish ways because they're like pop it's like a spook house where the door opens and a friend falls out but then there's just like behind a dark closet and you just slowly see his white face emerge from the darkness and I yeah. every time I see a dark room like I'm just staring at him like I hope a white there. face doesn't come out I hope William Shatner's white face doesn't pop out of there. I hope he doesn't pop out of here and make me drown in a pool <laughs> not funny what's funny is that you said make me drown in a pool make me we're talking about Halloween that's not that's not the thing that's not our thing on Month, of the uh, month from this it past month. It was pretty month. exciting. What did you do? To, this is November 1st that we're talking. But well, what did you do in the past month of October? Let's since see. We've last- Me and my girlfriend and two other people what went the- to go see Bob Baker. Oh. The Bob Baker Marionette Theater. I thought you were describing God, something else that I wasn't there for. <laughs> I was like, who did you go with? <laughs> who were you going to stuff without me? I went with you and your fiance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all went to- Our the- fiance. Our fiance. <laughs> and my ring must be in the mail. We went to the- I gave her two. <laughs> we went to the Bob Baker Marionette Theater for, for the Halloween special which was the Halloween spooktacular spooktacular thank right. you and it was fantastic yeah. it was my second time there everyone else's first time yeah, there and it was a blast I loved it so much we brought wooden masks for the both of you uh-huh. mine yours, was not painted was everybody's not painted. was beautifully painted well you got yours the day before I think we were recording the after intro thought. that night and and you, bought, like, you bought it at the afterthought store it's got a better name than that but you know that's pretty direct <laughs> it's to called the, the point. Dollar Tree <laughs> <laughs> it was great It was. it's yeah, It's it was a real fun. bummer because we know that it's going to be closing soon I love that little spot they're in just right there between yeah I wish the park It was a nightmare of going on every single turn I made. I thought I was back on the freeway trying to park. It's like out of five points underneath the Beverly and the first and Glendale. The YOs were there. (laughs) But it was great. I love that little spot there. And it was a perfect day to go see that stuff. And afterwards, uh, one of the, I wrote his name down, I forgot. But one of the (laughs) puppeteers, marionettes, I don't know. What are they called when they do marionettes? Uh, Is it different? Overlords. Overlords. (laughs) The puppet overlords. First, you wanted me to take a picture of you. Talking to a jack-o'-lantern. Yeah. And then like I saw, as I was about to take the picture, I saw the curtain movie i was like uh-oh <laughs> and then i saw the pumpkin marionette come out i was like oh, here we go and it was old and grumpy and it kept yelling yep. at me i thought i'm gonna follow you around and i followed this guy around and he was just uh, you know he was razzing on kids and stuff and it was cool he was nice to us because you know, he must have known that we have a podcast yeah he was auditioning <laughs> and here he is <laughs> <laughs> but he's not talking you just hear the clinking of yeah. wires from him <laughs> but they also gave us ice cream afterwards they did let's talk about the show itself it was a really cool show they yeah. it was just a barrage of like obscure Halloween hits. It's not a barrage. It's a burlesque <laughs> show. <laughs> not a burlesque show. Uh, vaudeville Certainly show. not burlesque. Well, no, it was a, a bur- barrage. Th- it was a couple of burlesque. It was an assault to the senses of Halloween music. There were some burlesque moments, which uh, the it was kids... so funny. Now they're going to associate sexual pleasure with skeletons. And we all know what with happens after that. cat puppets. <laughs> Put it on. Tie a Standards. string to my neck. 
chip the skin from my bones it's such a talented show and like i was we were talking about they don't make a big deal about hiding themselves the puppeteers so they'll yeah. do the show and they're like you know it's just a bunch of people but you get someone to the show that you forget that they're even when the guy was walking around with the jack-o'-lantern i was talking to the jack-o'-lantern and not the guy who was right behind it like yeah. you kind of forget well, it's like a weird trick you have a hard time differentiating reality from puppets <laughs> who was controlling who the muppets blurred line for me that song's actually about the muppets <laughs> um my thing of the month is sort of related to that i was trying to pick out one thing i did but i'm just gonna go ahead and pick all Halloween things that I've you done. You did in the a past lot. Month. You've been doing a lot, and you're probably going to continue doing yeah, a lot. And I week. won't stop <laughs> until There's it's no Christmas, which I don't me. celebrate. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to all the Christmas haunts come <laughs> December. I did the Bob Baker with yeah. you. I did a few backyard mazes, the backwoods maze, which was really good mm. in Burbank. And then I did the, the Rotten Apple one, also in Burbank, which is good. And then this one in Glendale, where it was a Donnie Darko experience, which mm-hmm. was a Donnie Darko experience. I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> and then I did the Ghost Train in Griffith Park. Which one was your favorite? I think the best haunt was the backwoods one. Although it doesn't matter to you, you're not going to be able to do any of this. Thanks. Not just, you, them. I kind of just want to hear about your experience. So do they? But you can just go ahead and disregard <laughs> no, it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I didn't happen to me, not you. <laughs> yeah, the backwoods one was the best one. I think it was because they it was pretty cramped. You didn't always know where to go, and they kind of wanted you not to know where to go, and okay. then they'd scare you. Oh, I like that. I like that uh, disorienting effect. Yeah, but then it was also like the costumes, and it all looked really good, and there were good scares in it. All the people were like rat people or like mouse people or pig people. No, you'd like this. But they were also, you know, one of them waved at me, so I felt safe. That's pretty nice. You went from not being someone who enjoyed that stuff to suddenly being someone who enjoyed that stuff. Explain that. Two years ago, I would never have done this. But last year, I don't know why, but I decided, maybe it's because it's free. I think it's because it's free. But I I decided to do one, and I was so scared going into it, but I made my sister go first. So then I enjoyed it because I didn't get any of the scares. Yeah, you got residual scares. Yeah, and then even going into like this first one, I was literally trembling this year because I had forgotten the fear yeah. i've forgotten what fear tasted like and now you're addicted to it i can't get can't enough. stop <laughs> can't stop that and marionettes <laughs> do you see yourself going to bigger haunts now I, well my five-year plan is that in two years i think i'd be ready for universal or okay. something like that next year i think i wanted to go to the one in thousand oaks that's like 105 rooms i don't know what switched in me that i suddenly like doing this you sort turned of thing. 30 that's it <laughs> i didn't turn 32 years ago i'm not you <laughs> i like the artistry involved in it the scares to be quite honest i don't know if it really scares yeah, me. It, the idea of being scared scares me. I don't yeah. know if I'm actually scared of any of this stuff. That's that's the best stuff is waiting for something to scare you or yeah. entering a room and trying to figure out where it's going to happen yeah. and then it happens somewhere completely else. Yeah. You know, I went with a big group of comedians and we made it a point. Was I there? Oh no, you don't do anything. You don't do anything except when I'm not around and then you do everything. <laughs> we were making a point of not being scared and I'm like, well, this isn't any fun and then every once in a while we're like, oh, that really got me. What do you mean making a point of not being scared? Like, like we walk like, in like, kind of, a little bit, Not I wouldn't say smug but Sounds like, like fun. I go and I scream. <laughs> I'm trembling. They have to pull me out of there. Fire department, ambulance, EMT people. They think I'm part of the maze because my bones are clattering. Wow, it starts in the line. I'm scared. It's not a smug approach to it, but it's sort of like, well, we know what's going to happen. We're going to enter a room and they're going to come like one at a time come. But every once in a while, you have your eye on one and then there's like a hole. You don't notice a big square hole in the wall and then something yeah. comes out and scares you. The holes in That's the, the fun. Yeah. yeah, that's the fun right there. The hole in the wall is the fun. Rubber Redford knows about it. Butch Cassidy, uh, Sundance Kids. Butch Cassidy, no, I said and the, the kid. Sundance Kids. You, said you jump Sundance all kids. every, you jump all over everything you think you hear is wrong. You said something pretty stupid just now. <laughs> you said the Butch Cassidy and the Muppet Some- Babies. <laughs> <laughs> We're joking, but I'd watch that. Wow, that's my Kermit. It's pretty good, baby um, Kermit, which is adult Kermit. We don't know how old he is. How old are frogs get? 
and then you just start singing uh, Rainbow Connection. (laughs) (laughs) 60. Uh, You have to answer a question now. We have to answer a question. We have to answer a question that you pre-answered. Yeah, a question that I answered already. (laughs) We have to answer a question I answered. So this is our listener question of the month. Mm -hmm. Listener or follower online who saw, this seems to be some sort of a Quora or Ask Jeeves Instagram (laughs) account. I should post a question here. Are you Bing? So this month, the question comes from Andrew underscore Petrovsky on Instagram. Whatever happens to the Olmstead plan for LA? Walk me through the Olmstead plan. Are you okay? Oh my God. Why don't you tell us what the Olmstead plan is and then answer the question for us? What? You're just a bag of grease right now. I'm not. I have Michael Myers. <laughs> he talks in this one. Turns out he's Kermit. The Michael Myers babies. That's funny. They should have like a 70s and 80s movie monster babies version. Like Baby Freddy, Baby Jason, Baby Michael. I'd watch that. And you know who could watch over everybody? Chucky, because he's technically the biggest. Yeah, I was going to say Jason Voorhees' mom since she's a killer in the first Friday the 13th and she watches everybody and then they all drown in a pool and then she's like, I got to kill teenagers. Did I spoil that movie for everybody? Uh, not everyone knew there was a pond in it. Did you say pond or lake? I said pool. <laughs> you put Shatner in my head. Oh yeah, we're talking about the Olmstead plan. Yes, so the Olmstead plan, did you you know? Not really. The name sounded familiar, but I once reading about it, I realized I've never heard of this before. <laughs> it was a plan in 1927 from the architecture firm of the Olmstead brothers. The plan was to make more parts in the city and prevent the ugly urban sprawl that LA yeah. became. So uh, there's good, your answer now. Good job. Yeah, it didn't work out. The LA Chamber of Commerce commissioned it. It was a celebrity committee that had Cecil B. DeMille and Mary Pickford on it. It was apparently very impressive, but the board of directors was divided on how it should be put into action. No one really knows. It was either self-sabotage or there was fear that the plan was too good mm-hmm. and that it was going to be taken over by power-crazy politicians. So nobody really knows what happened. But when the plan became public, yeah. there was no coverage in the press of it at all yeah. on purpose. So really? it was released and then it just kind of faded away and no one talked about it. And it was never put into action. Wow. So there's not really, as far as I could tell, not really an answer on that. But the legacy of it is in all these new plans to put a bunch of parks around the LA River today. Like that was their thing. Like LA was supposed to have like parks all around the rivers. Like not just like we have three parks. Yeah. I can already hear the people conspiring against it saying, if there's a park, then we can't build a million dollar apartment complex on that. If there's a park, then there's no parking lot. (laughs) How about we just ink in three more letters? (laughs) No Uh, one's gonna know. We already had our housing crisis episode, but I feel like every couple weeks when they knock something down that I love, I'm like, hmm, they're going to put people there, aren't they? Yeah. The whole thing of like the plan was just too good. Like, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I buy that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a really great plan if, I mean, I, well, we don't know what the plan is. Oh, I thought I, it was to build parks. It was, but we don't know exactly the plans. Oh, you mean like the like actual the realistic like steps? Like it's literally gone. Oh. I think they were able to find like a few pages yeah. of it, but like the plan does not exist anymore from what I can tell. Why are they trying to recover something from the 20s? It, like the city's yeah, different. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> We're going to have to tear down Capitol Records because there's supposed to be a waterfall there. Yeah, I guess it doesn't matter. But I don't know. Like, I, I wonder what it could have looked like because there's yeah. cities. They kept talking about these new plans for the L.A. River and referring to it as the Emerald Necklace, which is what they call what I learned yeah. in, in Boston. Because Boston has like this whole parks and stuff okay. around its river. And they call that the Emerald Necklace or something like that. Yeah. The Emerald uh, the Emerald Choker. And they renamed it in the 90s, the Emerald Choker. Yeah, once Hot Topic came about, they're like, you know what? Necklaces are great, but they're not new. <laughs> they're not. It's not 
compelling. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what it would have been at all. I'm happy to see parks like we just said. Every district you go to, there's like a couple parks, and it's always cool. But it, like, I feel like I see so many like ghost parks, like parks where nobody's at, even on the weekends. I, I was gonna say the same thing. Like, I feel like there are a lot of parks in Los Angeles, but it, exactly, it's like this is a park. There's a bench and some grass next to the freeway. Yeah. That's your park. Yeah, and yeah, nobody's there except at night when people are. God help them. In that. <laughs> God help whatever's happening to them in that park. It's a real bummer because like I have a two, actually three really big parks. I have the Echo Park Lake. Mm-hmm. I have Elysian Park, which is like there's always families there. And then Griffith yeah. Park, which is Griffith Park. Like yeah. there's, Balboa always, Park is good. Yeah, Balboa. Yeah, it's and it's weird because every 10 years or so, you'll see like a like a newscaster like, we're planting a tree and in 10 <laughs> years, this is going to be a real thing. But I mean, a park belongs where people need to gather. And if you're in the suburbs, people are just home. They don't need to go out. Yeah, but maybe if they had a park to go to. If everybody has a backyard to have a party, you don't need to have a park. Yeah, that's true. You're right. We don't. You know, we, who needs this Olmstead yeah, plan? It was I it. all along. I'm, <laughs> I'm the one who foiled the Olmstead plan. Yeah. More cement. Let's start the episode. So Can we? It's November first. Yeah. What do you think of when you think of November? Rose uh, midterm elections. Midterm elections. Uh, Trump. Trump wins. I, I'm in a Trump bar. wins again. I'm, I'm he won in the midterm too. <laughs> he got elected senator and president. <laughs> it's the death of Halloween. It's Thanksgiving. Yeah. The pumpkins are dying yeah, and they're they, reborn into a pie. pie. When we all sit down and carve pumpkin pies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's November, Thanksgiving. It's a lot of work. You yeah. gotta you're slaving over the oven. Ooh boy, I sometimes I want to jump right in here and just get out of this duty. <laughs> and I do mean duty. A lot of it. We've been, we've reached our hand inside of a turkey before and I'm like, whoa, they didn't clean this good enough. <laughs> there is a lot of duty in here. <laughs> oh wait, it's stuffing. I eat it. So then <laughs> So then what I do? <laughs> then I put a little bit of marshmallow on it. On I eat it out of the toilet. Nobody asks questions. Here's my Dan, secret. Weird. I'm not cooking all this all this dinner for everybody. They eat it all. They go in my toilet. Then I have dinner. So instead of, you know, oh, I'm so stressed out. My family's coming. What am I going to do? I have to make a turkey. Oh, no, they're allergic to turkey. Oh, no, my family is a turkey. Here's an alternative. Fast food. And lots of it. Lots of it for cheap. Who brought the in and out Uh-oh, not me. I brought Taco Bell. I didn't bring Taco Bell. I brought Western Bagel. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the easy way out of Thanksgiving. The anti-Thanksgiving, if yeah. you were. We have five mm-hmm. fast food places mm-hmm. that are LA places that became world-renowned. And some yep. of them, mm, locally renowned. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them. But a lot of them, world-renowned. Some of them, mm, I wish that you could translate into audio the things that your hand was doing when you were making that sound. Because it was like sort Sort of making them fingers rubbing together for money, but it was close to your ear like you wanted to hear it. Uh, hello? Is this a business call? <laughs> money, 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 money. This is another episode like last time where you might get... I know I You're for right. sure got very hungry. You're right. And th- I, I need to apologize to the listeners for my behavior in the last episode. <laughs> my blood sugar dropped very low after we were talking about chocolate for 45 minutes. We got a lot of comments like, hey, thanks for the warning ahead of time. Well, you know what? You might want to pick up a little... Yeah. Don't say it. Ooh. Food. Food. This, this is going to make you hungry. One, My first place I'm going to be talking about, I don't even like this place, but doing all this research i wanted it so bad yeah so let's get into it yeah let's start it out hit it hark the bells they chime for tacos Welcome to the 1940s San Bernardino, where a couple brothers by the name of McDonald are slinging hamburgers to any sad non-LA County resident that happens to pass by. But there has to be a better way, a way to think outside the bun. Enter Glenn William Bell Jr. That's a great name. Born September 3rd, 1923 in Linwood, Los Angeles. Oh, oh that's right. LA County. That's also, I believe, where Weird Al is from. Aren't the Beach Boys from there too? Are they? Aren't they from What's Linwood? going on? What's in the tacos in that place? <laughs> it's, in, it's in the tacos. It's in the tacos. That's the tagline of Taco Bell. Ring is in the tacos. Taco- <laughs> Ring, taco calling. 
What's that? You're making money gestures to your ear? Yeah, it's a taco. <laughs> the world's smallest taco. Cooking I'm playing the world's smallest taco for you. Glenn Bell, he was one of six kids of Ruth and Glenn Sr., or as he liked to be called, Glenn Supreme. At age five, the family moved to a farm in Oregon, but his dad was a construction worker who was often out of work. So this little five-year-old, Glenn Jr., he took it upon himself to sell cottage cheese door-to-door uh, to make some seller. money for the family. Imagine just handfuls. He Would you like a, a little <laughs> bit of my cottage tree? He had a bucket and a spoon. Yeah. He's like, how many spoons do you want? <laughs> Five cents for one, a dime for two scoops. Yeah, that just sounds disgusting. I wouldn't. I don't trust food from kids. I especially wouldn't trust yeah. the door-to-door cottage cheese child salesman. How do you feel about kids selling lemonade on a sidewalk? I spit at them. <laughs> it's Hubert's or nothing for me. No, I do like that, but usually their lemonade sucks. Yeah. Sorry, we say the unpopular opinions here. <laughs> unpopular opinion, children stink. <laughs> After this, when he went the same little boy, when he was 12, the family moved to a farm in Cedar Springs, which is right outside San Bernardino, which is a town I kept trying to Google it, no longer exists because it got swallowed by a flood in the early 70s. <laughs> San Bernardino, that <laughs> it, happens. I can make money off it. <laughs> I can sell this flood door to door. Before it became the Atlantis of San Bernardino, Little Bell was selling eggs and apples and flowers from his family's farm. I buy a, a flower from a kid yeah. or an apple, maybe. If he was saying, you know, God told you you shouldn't eat this apple. Yeah. If he, if he was trying to tempt me with it, I'll pay anything for that. The forbidden cottage cheese. He also helped his mom cook because deadbeat dad was doing nothing. And he became known amongst his family for his really good French fries. Okay. What Taco Bell is known for. Yeah. It's originally called French Fry Bell. He didn't see that as a ticket success just yet. Not old Ding Dong Bell, as kids called him in school. Instead, starting at age 16, he took to, you're going to love this, you're about to fall in love with Glenn Bell. All right. He took to going on the bum and riding the rails oh, hell yeah. on his school breaks from he would ride 16 year old boy riding the rails from california to washington and iowa doing whatever work he would find that was his summer and that's taco bell's food is that it's innovative and whatever you can scrap together it's, it's that hobo mentality <laughs> you might not have this tomorrow <laughs> throw it into a taco. what do you got there what do you got there what do you got there let's put it together in a tortilla and then another tortilla then chips <laughs> technically it's not a tortilla though this is part of a bindle i fried up <laughs> so one summer he made his way up to tacoma washington where his aunt lived and they started selling pies together as yeah, mrs yeah. dye's homemade pies it was D's. Mrs. D's homemade peas. That <laughs> was what they lady. sold during the winter. It wasn't pie season, but a lot of peas. He made $3,000 in that one summer during the depression. Wow. Mind you. So selling pies as a 16-year-old hobo. That's what he was doing. And so, there was an influx of hobos looking yeah. for work, too. Yeah. And this is a rich hobo. This is Richie Rich, the hobo. <laughs> People are never too poor for a pie. <laughs> Everyone wants a slice. Brother, can you spare a dime? I want to buy a pie. So this was two hints that maybe the food industry was his destiny, yeah. but no. Instead, he graduated high school in 1941 and got a job for the U.S. Forestry service and from there joined the marines in 1943 oh yeah oh those boys can eat and only whatever you throw them <laughs> so he served in the pacific and wouldn't you know it he happened to be assigned working on the solomon islands as a chef wow. he got better and better as a cook and his food became so well known that he ended up serving the higher ups when they came to visit and he could give diarrhea to any enemy <laughs> at an instant but three hints still wasn't enough so when the war ended he came back to san bernardino and bought a surplus army truck and he started transporting bricks at five cents a piece. So, bricks. Hmm. Hmm. They could be used to build a restaurant. Still nothing. From there, he got a job working for a railroad company. Then he leased a mini golf course that didn't make any money. And then he got a job at the gas company. Then he finally thought gas, cooking, 
I should follow what my whole life is pointing me towards and open up my own restaurant. So he bought a gas-powered fridge. He bought it really cheap from the gas company. They said he bought it. I think he just stole it from the gas company. <laughs> and he sold it for profit and used that money in March 1948 to jump in on the hamburger mania in San Bernardino and opened up Bell's Drive-In. It was on Oak and Mount Vernon and was near... I know we're talking about a lot about San Bernardino, but yeah. it's where the roots are. Okay. Rotten as they I are. I won't flag you. I won't throw a yellow flag on this. I, we get one per episode. <laughs> you might want to save it because I'm about to head but the referee. So Oak and Mount Vernon, it was near a public swimming pool. So it was the perfect location for hungry swimmers and about to be cramped up swimmers to mm -hmm. go eat. So he ran the place alone and worked from 9am to midnight oh, cooking what? and serving everybody who came up. Even with McDonald's in town, it was a big hit, but it was a tiny place. So in 1952, four years of 15 hour Grueling, days, yeah. Yeah, literally over a grill. So in 1952, he decided to sell this little hut for profit and he used that money to open up an even bigger hut with a high school friend named Neil Baker at the corner of North North 6th and Mount Vernon streets and it was called Bell's Hamburgers. Mm -hmm. So seeing as how the people of San Bernardino could not eat too many hamburgers in the 1940s, this place was also a really big success. The next year he even opened a second location of this place in Barstow. However Bell knew that this, it can't last. As much as we all want to believe the people of San Bernardino eat nothing but hamburgers, <laughs> he saw that more and more of these places were opening and eventually they'd all start losing business. Yeah. The market would just collapse as if it had have a heart attack from eating too many hamburgers. <laughs> he was sitting in the parking lot of McDonald's when he realized he had to offer something different, something that could set him apart, but he had no idea what that was. Enter the people of Mexico. I feel like a lot of people were trying to stop them from entering. That was the problem. <laughs> Can you just leave your food at the border? Then you go. We'll pick up the food. Is this just a delivery or did you want to stay for a little bit? So across the street from his stand in San Bernardino was a Mexican restaurant called Mitla Cafe. They had been around since 1937. It's still there today and they were pretty well known in the Mexican community in the area. Cesar Chavez used to eat there whenever he was in town. But what Bell noticed was that there was always long lines to eat there. So we wanted to go eat there and see what the fuss was all about. What he ended up having were a hot new thing called tacos. It's weird that tacos were new. I mean, they were new to him. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess I've been having tacos since an early age. So the idea of being a, a full grown man having a first taco is like, oh, that's odd. But I, you know, I had a gyro when I was like 27. So I kind of get it. Yeah. Which are Middle Eastern tacos. <laughs> we can all agree. I, I think I'll, often, every night before I go to bed, <laughs> about like maybe to our, maybe not to yours, but to my parents and grandparents, Exactly that. I'm yeah. sure my parents didn't, they didn't come to Los Angeles until they were in their 30s. I'm sure they didn't have a taco till. I don't know if my mom's ever had a taco. I have no idea. <laughs> I can but, call it right now. But, <laughs> mom, this is urgent. Mom, please wake up. Have you had a taco? <laughs> but then we think like, oh, you know, our grandparents, they have their comfort food. They like, like oh, rice pudding and yeah. uh, oatmeal and stuff. But like when we're old, like our comfort food, oh, like his grandpa's always eating a Gorgia chalupa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, gross. Yeah. Have you ever seen one of those? All he's eating are crunch wraps. <laughs> Shifting taste. Let's get back on yes, uh, please, sorry. what this taco stand, everyone's going to these tacos. In particular, what they had were tacos dorados, which were tacos where you would take the tortilla and you fry it into a hard shell along the lines of a taquito, but as a taco. You ever heard of this? Are like, these towns? No. <laughs> Bell couldn't believe what he was eating and he ate there again and again and again trying to mouth engineer the secrets to what and how they both. did this. Me and you both, brother. Yeah. <laughs> how do they do this? What is this stuff? <laughs> is this cow? <laughs> but he couldn't figure it out so he just gave up and he asked them and they showed him how to make a taco dorado. So That business failed and his business thrived and that's why you don't share secrets. <laughs> Never share trade secrets. Never tell a white man what's in a taco. <laughs> Moral of the story. So now he finally had 
had an idea that maybe this was what could set him apart from all the hamburgers and hot dog yeah. stands. Nobody was selling quick tacos, Dorados, least of all to the white mainstream at the time. So if he could do this right, he could do what nobody else did yet do for tacos what McDonald's did for hamburgers. He did the Elvis Presley thing, but with tacos. Yeah, yeah. exactly. If I could only find yeah. a white guy, if I could, black guy. What's the music? Mexican equivalent? <laughs> I mean, white people can steal from anybody. Yeah, <laughs> They don't yeah. have to be black. <laughs> they don't have to be black anymore. How uh, can I steal a taco and then sell it to white people? How can I take this taco and make it about a puppy dog so that white <laughs> people will like it? You know, I kept reading that, you know, he appropriated Mexican food. Yeah, but Mexican food's better. Yeah, we all know. <laughs> like, like, it's not, there's no competition. Yeah. Uh, there's no debate that Mexican people are superior, <laughs> but it, 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 this isn't Mexican food yeah. that he's doing. Anyway, so the reason nobody was doing a quick version of this was that Tacos Dorados wasn't quick. By the way, feel free to correct my pronunciation of this. I don't know. Either. First, correct my pronunciation of pronunciation. <laughs> to make these, you had to take the order, fry up the tortilla, load it up, and then it was ready. It could take like five minutes to yeah. do this. Which is normal. Really, it is. Like, yeah. I was thinking like, how long were these lines really? You were probably waiting seven minutes. Yeah. But, you know, a hot dog, you take it off the thing, it's ready. So, Bell realized that if he was going to make this work, he would have to have these hard shells pre-fried and ready to be filled to order. So, he got a guy who made chicken coops to make him a special fryer out of chicken wire to hold preformed tortillas so that he could dunk several of oh, them wow. into the fryer at a time and then have a bunch of pre-fried hard shells at the ready for when someone came to the counter to okay. order. The Taco Dorado style, obviously, it's been around for hundreds of years, but the idea of having a pre-made hard taco shell ready to go may be a Bell original, but it's also claimed by a couple people to have been invented in Texas, but there's no denying that Bell became the one to popularize this method. Right. Basically, old El Paso in the grocery store, you have Taco Bell to thank for that. Yeah. And I do thank them for that. Every time I see a box, I, I kneel and I salute. <laughs> Single tier and you play taps. Thank you uh, for your service. Thank you for your swift under five minute service. <laughs> so he fiddled around with these hard shelves for a while until he finally got it right. And then he filled it up with chopped up hamburger meat, which was cleaner to cook than frying up a messy hamburger. It was easier to do this. Put some lettuce, some cheese, topped it with his taco sauce, which was just the drippings basically from his chili burgers, like the chili burger sauce. Yeah, this is where it starts... Uh, that's where those noises start <laughs> happening. It all took 15 seconds to make one of these tacos. Jeez. So he felt confident enough with this new creation that it was finally ready. So he, it's alive, it's alive. <laughs> he hand-painted a sign. Ah, that's where Greg comes in. <laughs> hmm, the lines are crooked. <laughs> or whatever you keep saying to me every time you see a sign anywhere. It said tacos, colon, 19 cents. And he put it up next to his listings for hamburgers. Finally, a white guy in a suit came up to his hamburger hut and saw the taco sign. He had no idea what it was. So he said, give me one of those. The guy bit into it and the juices dripped down his sleeve and onto his tiny he thought, well, that's it for tacos. <laughs> this is not going to go well. But the guy loved it. All he right. went nuts. He hoot, he hollered. He <laughs> shot his pistols, his San Bernardino <laughs> pistols in the air. He said, I'm the mayor. I want another one. <laughs> so he got another one. And then more people started coming and they were ordering them, getting them on their ties everywhere until yeah. soon his tacos were outselling his hamburgers. So this is when he decided, maybe I should start shifting into the world of tacos exclusively. So he opened up a new restaurant called Taco Tia. My aunt the taco. My aunt the taco. In San Bernardino, 1954. Then he opened up two more locations in Redlands and Riverside. And between just these three places, they were taking in $50,000 a year in tacos for 19 cent tacos. He even converted his two Bell's Hamburgers locations to being basically taco tias as yeah. well. An early employee at his Barstow location was actually a man named Ed Hackbarf, which is the perfect name to get into the food industry. Yeah. Hackbarf. Hackbarf. He would then go on to found a direct competitor to Bell named Del Taco. Oh, really? Interesting. Child of the taco. Please, I am Don Del Taco. <laughs> Don Diego Del Taco. Bell was all about making things quick and efficient, so he borrowed an idea he got 
in the military and mowed down as many unarmed <laughs> citizens. <laughs> he built a shared commissary, a separate location for his several restaurants, which acted as a main kitchen. They would prepare all the vegetables, the taco shells and the sauces, and then ship that all out to each individual restaurant where they would cook their meat on their own and insert it with all the pre-made stuff. So that sped things up even more. But Bell had intentions from the beginning of Taco Tia to turn this into a major franchise nationwide empire. Uh, of course he did. That's what they do. They get one successful thing like, there's going to be a Taco Bell. There's going to be my Aunt Taco in every state. Soviet Ta- Union on top of the Berlin Wall. My the Berlin Aunt Wall will just be one long advertisement <laughs> for my Aunt Taco. What's the Berlin Wall again? Oh, we'll find out in a year or so. It's a hard-shelled wall. His plan, if it was soft-shelled, the break right through the it. whole world would have been much better. Checkpoint Charlie, please. <laughs> His plan was to sell tacos in mostly Latino neighborhoods because that way, if he was successful, any potential competitors would be like, oh, well, his tacos are selling because he's in a Latino neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Then he could start branching into other neighborhoods. And by that time, the competitors realized, well, oh, it's not just a Latino thing. He'd already be too powerful and too well-established to fight it. Sneak attack. He's Bane. He's He's Bane. Yeah, he's Bane. Let's compare the Latino community to the pit that Bane trained in. (laughs) Yeah, good job, Greg. Bane's Uh, the strongest one. He broke Batman's back. It's it's good. It's a good comparison. It's like the like the Mexican people will break the back of the white man. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, which white man? So this was the first step in his plan for world domination. And, but then, uh, like we said, Bane. But then, he, <laughs> but then he did branch into a non-Latino community and built another taco tia in Pasadena, and it did not do well. Yep. They were not ready for that. You mean Pasadena doesn't like other cultures coming into them? That's weird. They, they were trying to arrest the building itself. <laughs> Why is it speaking Spanish at me? <laughs> I told you, no Spanish here. Taco tia, get out! In English, he's yelling at it. Closed <laughs> building sign in English. This put Bell at odds with his partners in Taco Tia, who didn't want to risk expanding into the Los Angeles area. So Bell cashed out of Taco Tia in 1956 really? and finally came back to the city he came from, the city of Angeles. Los, comma. So he was going to open up a whole new taco chain in LA and it was going to be successful because if he did it once, he could do it again. Yeah. Watch me. But he needed some partners once more. Luckily, some players from the LA Rams trained near Taco Tia and they loved the food. So they were interested in investing in a new taco place by the same guy. So them and a couple others joined Bell and in 1958, he opened El Taco. Uh, when, I, there. when I read that, I know <laughs> it's uh, Taco Tia. No. no. El Taco. No. no. Del Taco. No. <laughs> when I read it. Maybe. <laughs> Well, maybe one day. When I read that with the LA Rams, I was like, wait a minute. They just came two years ago and they realized, oh yeah, they were, they, there yeah. were other words. You're a pretty smart guy. It takes Taco Bell's only two years old, right? Is it too late to invest? <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly where this first El Taco was or any of the El Tacos were, but by 1962, there were four of them. Okay. But by then, Bell realized, I don't need partners. Like, I'm I'm the one. Yeah. I don't need to share this with anybody. I don't need to take their input. He's proven three times now that he could open up a successful taco chain. Yeah. So now he wanted to finally create the big one he'd always dreamed of. So in 1962, he cashed out of El Taco and bought a plot of land at 7112 Firestone Boulevard in Downey. Downey. He built a whole plaza there in a fake Mexican style called Plaza Guadalajara. <laughs> My favorite part of Mexico. <laughs> My favorite part of Mexico is actually Downey, California. My favorite state in Mexico is Plaza Guadalajara. <laughs> so it was like a few open air stores, but the main attraction was a little 20 foot by 20 foot food, food stand. 20 foot by 20 foot foot stand. It Did ha- he build a whole plaza and then just sneak Taco Bell onto there? Yeah, he he built a whole plaza to draw you in, but like the main come, draw come eat, was come eat the food. He Trojan horsed it. That's cool. Taco Bell's. That's Taco Bell. Uh, <laughs> that's Taco how Bell. I eat that's the food too. That's <laughs> Taco Bell in a hard shell. <laughs> so it had no indoor seating. It was just a counter you ordered at and a patio with some fire pits for the nighttime. But what should Taco Man Bell call this Taco Bell stand of his? 
Let me say that again. Yeah. What should Taco Man Bell call this Taco's top? <laughs> oh my God! What? What? But what should Taco Man Bell call this Bell's taco stand of his <laughs> near the city of Bell? Near the city of Bell, <laughs> where tacos. What do we have to? A friend suggested he should combine his name with his passion. So Glenn Entrepreneurship was born. <laughs> Glenn He's, murdering people by the highway. Glenn, I don't need any partners anymore, so I'm cashing out. Was born March 1962. The very first Taco Bell opened. The menu consisted of of a taco, Mm -hmm. tostada, frijoles, and a bell burger, which was just a hamburger made of taco meat. Everything cost 25 cents each. Their logo, it was this weird interpretive image of a guy sitting on top of a bell wearing this huge sombrero, and it kind of looked like a Coco Pelli. Very precarious. It's very weird. Yeah. It was surreal imagery. Oh my God. I was tripping bolitos when I looked at this. (laughs) It was a hit because everything he does, people want tacos. That street it was on was a pretty busy Mm -hmm. thoroughfare at the time, so a lot of customers were coming. The area was also an aerospace hub, so it's safe to say that most of the early space work and the lunar landing was powered by Taco Bell. In space, no one can hear you, Caro. In just six months, they opened up a second location in Long Beach, then in Paramount, Gardena, Altadena, Pasadena, Snuck whatever. Back into Pasadena. Yeah. You know, the way into Pasadena is to Through start Altadena. something in Altadena and then be like, oh, you know, over there on Lake and whatever yeah. up there by the mountain, they like it over there. Yeah. Do we want it over here? <laughs> the way to Pasadena's halt, the way to Pasadena's heart is through Altadena. What is going on with me? I took an extra strength day quill before That's this. That's what's happening. And to I, you. what I didn't quite realize is that I have allergies. What you didn't realize it was that it was a night quill. What you didn't realize is that I laced it with arsenic <laughs> and you have four minutes to finish the story. <laughs> each of these new locations, they each had their own grand openings with salsa music, free sombreros, oh, yeah. but no salsa. Because that's a little too much. <laughs> it's but, not that authentic. Uh, the salsa is just ketchup. But the real money came from franchising yeah. in Taco Bell. In 1964, the first franchise Taco Bell opened in Torrance. It was run by a retired LAPD officer named Kermit Becky. Okay, what was the real name, though? <laughs> Muppet Baby. <laughs> you want me to do my Kermit impression again? No, we're good. This first franchise by run by Kermit, Taco Bell by Kermit, was taking in $10,000 a month starting in the first month. So from there, franchise crazy. He used to be great at French fries. Now he's good at franchise. That hurt my teeth to hear. Go ahead. Because <laughs> you can really sink your teeth into that. <laughs> they became so big that in 1966, they went public on the Pacific Stock Exchange, and that gave them more financing to expand more and more and more. In 1967, just five years after their first location, yeah. they opened up their 100th restaurant in five years. It's an explosion of tacos. It's almost as if the market ate a Taco Bell taco and then had some sort of explosion. Some sort of reaction to it. <laughs> By 1970, there was 325 Ooh. locations. All, all across the Southland? All in Downey. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you can actually open one up in every apartment that's there. It's Dude, weird. They, they considered any kitchen to be a Taco Bell. <laughs> but you can't get that big without someone noticing. And the Pepsi Corporation has many spies with many eyes. And also they have Pizza Hut, who in the late 60s tried to open up a competitor to Taco Bell. Did you know this? No. You know like how Carl's Jr. has the green burrito? Yeah. Pizza Hut had the Taco Kid, okay. but it failed. What year was this? Late 60s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> you remember going down to the old Five and Dime <laughs> and on the way home talking to the Taco Kid? Yeah, the Taco Kid on my way to the A&P and the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> you were going home to watch the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> yeah, this is a I sequel. Some tacos. <laughs> I hope it's Ted this time. <laughs> Who's it gonna be? Who's it gonna be? <laughs> First reality show. Fallen American Idol. <laughs> Obviously failed. So Pepsi decided, let's spend a ton of money and just buy Taco Bell. That's fine. Which is exactly what they did. February 1978, $125 million. <laughs> they bought Taco Bell. That's, you know how many more Taco Bells I can open with that money? <laughs> you know how many gorditas I can buy? <laughs> That's also why they're often, I never understood this, but now it makes sense. Taco Bells and Pizza Huts in the same building, because they're both owned by PepsiCo. Yeah. Is Pepsi owed Mountain Dew? Are you talking about the Baja Blast? Uh, or are you going to cover that? Uh, Is that the next four pages? Yeah. The, Baja Blast? I'm going to do a deep dive into Baja Blast <laughs> right now. I hope you don't mind. 
I brought a scientist friend. I mean, they must. I, I yeah. think if you look, Pepsi owns everything. Yeah, pretty. everything we're talking about tonight, I'm pretty sure is owned by Pepsi. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Pepsi. <laughs> oh, forgot to mention. <laughs> brought to you by Coca-Cola, which is owned by Pepsi. <laughs> so it's Yum Brands Inc., which is the restaurant division of PepsiCo. They run Pizza and Taco okay. Bell and everything else. They also run whatever slavery ring is running through. They run PizzaGate. <laughs> they run Pizza Hut, PizzaGate, Taco Bell. You know, it started as a subsidiary of Pizza Hut. I don't know what went wrong. They tried to branch out into more children, like, <laughs> sort of like a Chuck E. Cheese sort of thing. We were selling cages. We were selling kids. And then what do you know? Look what happened. <laughs> Look what happened. Somehow, here we are at the <laughs> midterm elections. He had built a Taco Bell. He had bu- Bell had built Taco Bell. This is too much to be saying on yeah. Extra Strength Day Quill. Yeah. He built Taco Bell into an 868 location mega chain, but this was the end of the line for old Ding Dong Bell. He recognized his limitations as a businessman, and he said he knew when to let go, so he retired retired from the taco industry after this sale, but not before helping a friend of his named John Gallardi open up a place we talked about in a previous episode, Der Wiener Schnitzel. Mm. It's all coming together. Yeah, this is what I live for. <laughs> this is the Marvel mashup I've been waiting for. His dream was to open up a Taco Bell theme park, and he even <laughs> bought land in Florida to open up this theme park, but it fell apart. I hope so. Literally, the land <laughs> fell apart. He did have a place called Bell Gardens, not that one, near oh. his house in Rancho Santa Fe, but it was mostly just a farm that you could visit. I'm also that okay with that. That in 2003. When I read Bell Gardens, I was like, wait a minute. That's already a thing. Yeah. yeah. Is Bell Gardens a subsidiary of Pepsi? <laughs> Does this corruption scandal go even deeper? <laughs> Say what you will about Glenn Bale and Glenn Bale Glenn and Bale. appropriation of Mexican food. <laughs> and we already have. Yeah. But Taco Bell was a lot of people in this country's first exposure to quote unquote Mexican food. Yeah, gateway food. Gateway <laughs> taco. That's something. That's at least something to make people vaguely aware that there's other cultures out mm-hmm. there than McDonald culture. You know, it's something. It's something. I don't hate Taco Bell. I eat it. I don't hate it. In fact, I love it. It's my favorite <laughs> Mexican food. He showed them that a taco had all the same ingredients that a hamburger did. Beef, cheese, tomatoes. It was just made a different way. And in the end, aren't we all just hungry people eager to get diarrhea no matter what shape our beef comes in? Vote no on prop diarrhea. <laughs> That's your Thanksgiving message. Yeah. Aren't we all just really hungry and want to poo? <laughs> don't we all just have irritable bowel syndrome? <laughs> Let us eat. I'm thankful for IBS. <laughs> aren't you? Oh, I'm, it's only me? I am thankful that I can be so open with all of you about my <laughs> IBS. So Glenn Bell died on January 16th, IBS, 2010. Wow. Not that long ago, but Taco Bell didn't. That sale back in 1978 kicked things up a notch. A Del Scorcho of flavors. What's the name of their, do they have a hot sauce? Honestly, I have not eaten. Fire. Fire, they have it. I do not have a lot of experience with Taco Bell at all. I love their cinnamon twists, but other than that, I really haven't eaten much there. It's sort of a punchline among comedians that it's almost like an avant-garde fast food where they're willing to throw anything together. That's like the punchline about it, but I'm a fan of it. It's one of those restaurant chains that I just didn't grow up. There wasn't one near me so i like i not until maybe like yeah. i was in high school did we get a taco bell mixed with the kfc nurse and i was like yeah. okay well i'm gonna eat this all the time because there's a lot of sour cream in it the mexican fast food i got was del taco yeah okay which well, I, we're just two boys growing up in different parts of town that's all you came from the wrong side of the shell that's almost good that sale back in 1978 drove taco bell national it also seemed to drive them insane because from then on taco bell slowly morphed into the manic mutant mexican mush that we all know it is today here we're getting to it first off the kind of weird racist logo had to go they changed it to the bell that we all know yeah ding 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 fair at least somebody's willing to stop a racist logo yeah take a hint sports teams maybe we should change the redskins into i don't know a taco (laughs) hey 
It's better. Then it was off to the races, not the racists. More and more <laughs> locations kept opening. Their biggest competitor at the time was Nagels. Do you know them? No. It was actually started by one of the partners from Del Taco. And in 1983, they had 160 stores making 84 million. That was their next biggest competitor. Taco Bell had 1,600 stores making 918 million. So, like, so there, there was, not a there was no competition. Yeah. <laughs> the first international location of Taco Bell opened in London in 1986. They must not know what the hell that is. That's so far removed from yeah. everything. They don't even know what bells are. Do they have that in old-timey London? Uh, they call them dingawobbles. <laughs> <laughs> they had to change the name. What's this banger dingawobble? <laughs> they got even stronger in the late 80s when they streamlined their entire operation. They started preparing most of the food off-site and shipping it into each location, which allowed for two things. First, they were able to take the layout of their restaurants from 70% kitchen to 30% dining room. Flip that. Now it's 30% kitchen, 70% dining room because they're not cooking the food there. Just the meat, but nothing else is really made. Uh, if you could call it meat. You gotta bring that cow in. Yeah, they got rid of the slaughterhouses that was in yeah. each Taco Bell. <laughs> so now more customers could be in there, but also by doing most of the cooking offsite, they were able to drop down their costs so low that they could offer prices even lower. So they started offering a discount menu in 1988, which as far as I could tell, made them the first fast food place to offer such a thing. They took this even further in 1990 with their 59, 79, 99 cent value menu offered in, at that time, 3,273 locations. Yeah. So it was moves like these that had Taco Bell doing better business than McDonald's in the early 90s. Yeah. So they started opening up counter versions of Taco Bell in airports and sports arenas and even in supermarkets where they started selling Taco Bell brand taco shell salsa and beans in 1993. Around this time, they also gave up completely on having company-owned locations and now it's just franchising. Okay. So they sold off their company locations to franchisees. So hey, you guys just take care of everything. Take the name. Give me, give me, give me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm playing the world's smallest taco. You know what that means. <laughs> money's coming. When you see a taco weep under the moonlight, that means money's <laughs> coming in your future. So we know Taco Bell's popular, but their secret weapon is their marketing and the constant food experimentation. Yeah. So let's start with the marketing. In 1989, they became the first fast food chain to link up with a blockbuster movie to cross remote. Guess the movie. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No. Bill and Ted. No. 1989. Oh, uh, Batman. Yeah. Was it really? It's Batman. How? Uh, well, because we were talking about Bane before. <laughs> you know, they cross-promoted like Batman eats. Oh, I see. I see. I see. So you Batman watch a Taco Bell Jalupa. commercial and it's got Batman in it for some reason. Exactly. But there's no Taco Bell in Gotham City. No. They went with Del Taco for that one. <laughs> they were in Nagel City. Bruce, we don't have time. There's always there's time, always time <laughs> for Nagels. <laughs> Their catchphrases, they started with make a run for the border. It's funny. Then Not really, though. There were the <laughs> I hope that got scrapped really quickly. That lasted for like 20 years. Um, then they had the cure for the common meal, which I feel like was something for Mad Men. Then in 1997, they brought in a little chihuahua named Gidget and oh the voice uh, the voice of a man named Carlos Alazraki. Yeah, he's uh, he does a lot of voices. He's he Rock does Rocco's Modern Life. Really? Who is yeah. he in Rocco's Modern Rocco. Life? You're joking. No, he's also on Reno 911. He's Reno 911. Yeah. I know that. Are you kidding me? He was Rocco? Yeah. So it was a new series of commercials with the catchphrase, Yo Quiero Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. These commercials only lasted two years because they wanted to change their company image to being more about fresh ingredients and having a dog <laughs> with plenty of usable meat on it as a spokesperson they felt was not the right path to go with. <laughs> let's not draw the parallels any further. Yeah, let's stop it right there. Yo Quiero Human though. Rights <laughs> for a dog. In 2003, they actually lost a lawsuit against two guys who said the Chihuahua thing was their idea. From there, they changed the slogan to think outside the bun and today it's live moss gidget the chihuahua didn't get turned into a chalupa but instead lived on a level of fame none of us will ever achieve she appeared at madison square garden she was in legally blonde too she opened up the new york stock exchange one day and she was in a geico commercial in 2002 i remember that like i remember some commercial i remember campaigns. watching the stock market open that day <laughs> i was distraught i mean orange juice was down or whatever the hell they measure by whatever they're looking at the I breakfast know. market because yeah. it's in the morning <laughs> yeah i remember that commercial campaign and Sausages hating every up. second of it it happened to 
you hate it. Then there's parodies and you hate those. And you yeah. said, this won't end. She retired to a life gidget of leisure in Santa Clarita. Oh, cool. Until she had a stroke at the age of 15 no. in 2009. We lost gidget. Oh. No. Yo quiero military funeral. Yo quiero immortality. Yo quiero rosebud. <laughs> <laughs> The, the world's smallest tacos playing in my ear again. They also had a lot of gimmicks that got a lot of people excited. Like in 2001, when the Russian Mir space station was going to crash back into Earth, they put a big tarp in the ocean off of Australia that had a bell for a bullseye and said free taco here. And if it crashed into the Taco Bell tarp, they promised to give everyone in the United States a free taco. Wow. It did not hit. So everyone in the country was forced to eat a Man, bowl of borscht. And I starved that night. <laughs> Never walk over my jokes again. <laughs> So in 2007, they had the steal a base, steal a taco promotion that everyone oh, yeah. in the U.S. would get a free taco for each stolen God, base in that year's World Series. Away. I know. I feel like I could go into a Taco Bell on any day of the week and I would get a free meal. Probably. And not just because of who I am. They were even able to turn bad press to their advantage when in 2011, a class action lawsuit against them claimed their beef was only 35% actual beef. They countered with an ad campaign that said, thank you for suing us and touted that their beef, it's actually 88% beef. <laughs> and the lawsuit was dropped. You then, can't argue with that logic. No, that you comedic can't. logic. Hey, you can't argue with math. And then there's the second part of their success. They're crazy menu items. There's the classic, like the Crunchwrap Supreme came yeah. out in 2005. Mountain Dew Baja Blast in uh-huh. 2004. Then there were things like the Beefy Fritos Burrito, yeah. which has Fritos in it. The Double Decker. So I guess it is called that. I scolded you earlier. You did. They're not called Double Deckers. They're called Chalupa Lupas. <laughs> you spit on my shoe. <laughs> you said, you call yourself Mexican-American? How dare you? Cesar Chavez is rolling in his grave because you don't know what Double Decker tacos. The Double Decker Supreme taco, which is a hard shell taco, layer of beans, then a soft tortilla. Seven layer burrito, the Cheetos burrito, the naked chicken chalupa, which is a taco with fried chicken as a shell. The BLT taco, the firecracker burrito, which had savory pop rock exploding things in it. The chocodilla, which was a Kit Kat quesadilla, which I really wanted, but killed too many kids or something. In 2014, they started serving breakfast with things like the naked egg taco, which is a taco with a shell made of fried eggs. Waffle taco, you can fill in the blank. French toast chalupa. It's like a lot of these are dares and like people were like oh can you imagine they did it i bet you won't get one i bet you won't get one and they sold two tacos that way that's like on purpose like well you'll hear how successful some of these things march 2012 after three years of testing they came out with the big one the doritos locos taco their biggest hit until earlier this year when they unleashed nacho fries which was their most successful product launch in taco bell history they sold over 53 million orders in three months that's That's a lot of friends daring a lot of friends isn't it greg these people you don't have a lot of friends yeah (laughs) (laughs) you don't have 47 million friends all that being said they were also the first fast food place to offer a section of their menu approved by the American Vegetarian Association, which is just like a plate of tortillas. (laughs) In 2014, they opened up an experimental, slightly more upscale version of Taco Bell in Huntington Beach called U.S. Taco Co. That was Day of the Dead themed. It closed in a year. They got to learn, stop opening these experimental restaurants in places like Huntington Beach and Pasadena. They also opened a cantina style version in Chicago called Taco Bell Cantina. But that one original location where it all began, it closed in the 80s and became a few other mom and pop taco places over the years until 2014 when it became abandoned. It was going to be demolished, but the developer of the land let the Downey Conservancy know. So they're able to work with Taco Bell to save the building, which they transported on the back of a truck in November 2015, late one night down the 405 to the Taco Bell headquarters <laughs> in Irvine. People just driving up to do it, trying is to that, order. Is that the original Taco Bell? <laughs> Wait a minute. Hey, did that used to be a Taco Tia? <laughs> Today, Taco Bell sells over 2 billion tacos Oof. and 1 billion burritos a year, taking in about $10 billion every single year. Some of that goes towards their Taco Bell Foundation for Charity and the Live Moss Scholarship, which I keep applying for. All this coming from their over 7,000 locations worldwide on every continent but Africa and Antarctica. One place there's no Taco Bells, Mexico. (laughs) 
1992, they thought it was time to break into the motherland and open up a few locations. They all closed within two years. Yeah. Then they tried again in 2007, opening up a location in Mexico City, but this time not pretending to be actual Mexican food because the first time around, nobody understood what any of the food was. <laughs> so this time they renamed stuff like calling Crunchy Tacos Taco Stadas. This lasted three years and they haven't tried since. One food critic in Mexico said that trying to bring Taco Bell into Mexico is like bringing ice to the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> this is why Taco Bell doesn't try to pass itself off as Mexican food anymore, but instead as Mexican-inspired food. And that's all they need to say from yeah. the beginning. They d- yeah, no, pr- don't pretend. Like, don't, don't pretend. even pretend it's Mexican anything anymore. <laughs> this is just, I don't know what this is, but it's, I want it. It's like the thing where it morphed with a taco. And then, what is it? Yeah. And then it pretended like, I want a taco, I want a taco. Yeah, you're like, you're not a taco. taco. I know a taco. You're not a taco. One of these things in here is not really a taco. <laughs> it's taking sauce from each yeah. taco. <laughs> and I'm going to put a little bit of fire on this. <laughs> he puts it on, it squirts in his eye. <laughs> that's it. So I'm starving again. Yeah. What's your first one? I'm going to be talking about Zanku chicken. I always call it Zanku. You're calling it Zanku. You had an official consultant. I had a consultant on this one. It's Zanku. Zanku. Off record. Off record. Zanku. <laughs> on record, Zanku, sir. There's a lot of really hard things to pronounce in here. So be patient. I have a white person's mouth. So I apologize. This humble little story begins in the most humblest of places. Beirut and Lebanon, <laughs> the very not turbulent year of 1962. The franchise started in, here we go, Baruj Hamoud, district mm-hmm. of Beirut, which was once a slum for Armenian refugees who escaped the genocide and was blossoming into like a cultural area for Armenian, the mm-hmm. Armenian community in that area. It opened as a little spot that sold rotisserie chicken and was opened by Vartkes Eskandarian and his wife Margarete. It was named after a river in Armenia, and although Google didn't indicate that there was a Zanku River, <laughs> it got swallowed up by the same San Bernardino flood. <laughs> <laughs> They're connected in a weird way. There was a really big splash we don't know where it went <laughs> on their website they like we named it after a river in armenia they don't tell you anything about the river but then they say that the word for bell in armenian is zankog wait a minute bell? bell yeah like taco bell like bell b-e-l-l you're kidding me no that's yeah. so weird it's pretty odd are all of the like is panda we're gonna be talking about panda express is panda bell in chinese oh my god look it up <laughs> fact check google translate what does panda <laughs> express mean in chinese in cantonese not mandarin <laughs> siri on their first day they sold one chicken and on their second day they sold two to another chicken trying to get his wife back. <laughs> Why they, did the chicken buy the chicken? Because it was a lady doctor. Because <laughs> he couldn't operate on his son. Wait a minute, I got it wrong. Because the doctor's a man. Oh. On their first day, they sell one chicken. And on the second day, they sell two chickens. That's double the first day. At this rate, they're going to be great. I can't wait to get to day 300. We're going to be doing pretty good. It's day two. I see where we're trending. <laughs> Place an order now for 8,000 chickens for next Thursday. I have a hunch. Their shop was tiny. It had a lot going against it. But something that would distinguish them early on, even in 1962, in this little shack in Beirut, was this. Now, Zanku chicken is known for two things the first thing their most prized possession their tangy garlic sauce i love it so even in 1962 that really? tangy garlic sauce that's was, so it's so weird that these places usually become known for their sauces yeah right that's what i go for i'm yeah, a saucy guy sauce. i like slop. saucy guy i like slop i ask for everything without sauce can, can i get you, this before you cook it can you put more sand on that now it's said to be a secret family recipe but i stumbled upon an 80s to 90s la times clipping mm. and it read the ingredients because Someone's i respect family secrets lips. i will not say it on this podcast <laughs> it's out there if you're and curious I, I flag that article as spam <laughs> it's deceptively simple all the stuff that I could buy like today at like a gas station. Male enhancement pills. <laughs> Batteries. <laughs> Air freshener for your car. Easy. <laughs> and also a for little you. bit of a tiny thing of old motor oil. Splash them. Four locos. <laughs> that, it's very good stuff. Four locos? 
No, yeah. <laughs> Have I expressed my love of four locos on this show yet? <laughs> the garlic sauce is fantastic. It is. It really is. Let's That's talk fun. about our experiences with each of these places okay. as we're talking about. And we talk about Taco Bell. I don't know much about it. I, I like it. those cinnamon things. You love it. Zanku chicken, I do like a lot. Their garlic sauce is great. Yeah. But the last time you and I both we had went, it. Went, we went and we said, this is going to be great. When we're together, we don't spend this much money on food. Yeah. Which is not a lot of money. No. It's known for its affordability, <laughs> yeah. Zanku. But we thought, hey, let's treat ourselves. Let's yeah. get some nice chicken. We ate it. We were so happy we came i think to record an episode shortly afterwards i almost got run over by your own car trying to run to the bathroom <laughs> you left my car I, you yeah, ran to the bathroom to. and i had to go too and i had to park the damn thing and been like save a stall for me it, it wasn't even like you got to go find parking like the spot was right there i yeah. made you let me out here and i ran to the bathroom we both bathroom. got it, not good food poisoning i put a plumber's daughter through college that's <laughs> what i did to that bathroom you yeah. ever heard the old one about the plumber's daughter <laughs> she was a doctor she could operate because this, this is not 1921 and you're allowed to be more than just a nurse. <laughs> not to put it down, but that was our last experience. Still, garlic sauce is great. Yeah. I stand by that. I'm a big fan. I think I'll get to my first experiences with it, but we'll get there. Yeah, let's get there. Oh, that wasn't your first experience? <laughs> <laughs> you're going to love it. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to digest this so slowly. <laughs> so in the early days of Zonku, there was no cash register, no tables, no chairs. They utilized every inch to cook the chicken and food prep. Customers had to park on a one-way street, then they run in and hand Vardkis the cash and then run back out. You can't eat here. Their son, Mardiros, said that it was a drive through before there was a drive through I challenged that and call it a run-in. <laughs> I had a run-in with a chicken. <laughs> delicious he was trying to cross the road to uh the, the mother was the he was, doctor he was, he was trying to cross the road because he was an old man he was a human who was walking and crawling and using a cane i what well, did my I metaphors here? are turning into the sphinx I, I i'm mixing up my similes and my metaphors my riddles are loose there was three iskandarian children there was mardiros who was the oldest and then his sisters Dzovig and Hygon. just as simple as their setup was their mission which was to share with the community the delicious family chicken recipe they started with chicken and so, so wait a minute are they giving out the recipe no no, no they're like, going to okay. share it as in but in the la times in about 20 years, years you can get that you could just look it up if you subscribe to the la times you could probably find it i feel like it's a trick i'll show you in this. person we'll meet in the la makely test kitchen i'm gonna put them out of business um just, i'm gonna take the sauce and put it on tacos <laughs> so they started with chicken as slowly their mediterranean menu grew as did their clientele they just built a fan base around right. it now come to our homeland the history of our meeting community in la goes back to like the late 1800s really huge, yeah there was a huge surge in population grew around the time of the armenian genocide which was 1915 that was the second right. wave at this point the armenian immigrants began to settle in little pockets of Los Angeles, most notably East Hollywood and Glendale around the 1940s. Do we know why? Not really. I mean, why I mean, anywhere? Yeah, why anywhere? <laughs> like, I think like a couple families move one place and yeah, then like they opened up like it. a I, newsstand I, that has Armenian right. or I, Chinese I, or I, Korean, <laughs> whatever. And then people were like, oh yeah, people speak Korean over here and no one else does. Let's go there. Everyone thinks there's probably some big reason. Like there's got to be a reason. There's so many yeah. Israeli people in Tarzana. There's probably one family that moved there. Another family knew them. And they opened and up a other... bakery with all the food that I know. So yeah. we're going to go there and I'm going to open up. That's simple. A dry cleaning business right next yeah. to them and then well we what are you making these stereotypes i'm not i'm just saying you know mom pop shops well you know the daughter was a dry cleaner <laughs> <laughs> i can't dry clean my clothes i can't dry clean this chicken well the thing with east hollywood is that it's a very cultural diverse part of town you have thai town you have historic filipino town there's right. korea town to the south the area known as little armenia is in east hollywood the borders are hollywood and santa monica boulevard vermont avenue and then the hollywood freeway the most intense surge in population is said to be in like the 1970s when the soviet union lifted immigration restrictions and then there's like that's like mm. the big third wave, I believe. So the Iskandarians have been serving their community in Beirut for 20 years or so, and their little chicken spot, Zanku, is thriving. According to the reading, Mardiros was really taking charge on a lot of different aspects of his parents' business. He was not a standby son. He was very active in operations. I read this weird thing about him, and it doesn't really have to do with that, but it's a weird thing, and it happens in this point. 
basically, 1979. He was about a block from their Zanku spot, standing in front of an empty storefront when two men on motorcycles sped by. Now, previously, there was some dispute about rent that he and a tenant had had. I don't know too much about that, but from what I read, the two men on motorcycles spotted Mardiros, did a lap, came back wearing masks, and fired rounds from AK-47, hitting Mardiros 16 times, and he lived to tell the tale. What? Yeah. That could just be like a tall tale or whatever. That sounds like the Godfather. It sounds like Fredo let it happen. From that point, I'm sure it was like, I think we should move. Let's not be here anymore. His parents didn't really want to come to America. They didn't even want to really continue in the food business. If they came to America, they were interested in opening a dry cleaning service, which is why I was is in my Is that head. a common thing that I don't, Armenian people would do? I have no idea. Let's phone an expert. Let, <laughs> but Mardiros knew that Zanku was something truly special. He had visited Los Angeles before and seen these pockets of communities from people from the Middle East, but no significant fast food places that were serving them. Barely any recognizable food from the region. So he pitched the idea to his parents and they said no. And he said, oh, come on. And they said, <laughs> No. And he said, ah, shucks. <laughs> and he said, come on. And they're like, yeah, right. It's so weird that basically the idea for every fast food is like, well, this is a this is an ethnic here. sort of food. Yeah, this is Let's a- make this really fast. <laughs> Let's get them in and out the door and take their money before they realize the food's not good. <laughs> before they realize they're about to get food poisoning. <laughs> the Iskandarians. In were- one instance. <laughs> only one time I've eaten there a lot. The Iskandarians were going to Hollywood after serving their community in <laughs> Lebanon for 20 so, years. So they got in their convertible. <laughs> they drove across they drove the Atlantic. PCH, which connects which to the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> to connect into Israel. <laughs> They've been doing their thing in Lebanon for 20 years. Now they're coming to Hollywood. They're here to spread the good word in Los Angeles. And that word? Bird. Bird kebab. <laughs> their son, Mardiros, led the way and opened up their first Los Angeles location on Normandy and Sunset. He picked a tiny little spot, and I mean tiny, next to a laundromat in a very ratty, and I mean ratty, <laughs> mini mall plaza with the worst parking. And in East Hollywood, they already had a built-in customer base of Armenian-Lebanese compatriots who fled the Lebanon during the Civil War. So that was already there for them when they got there. Is this location still here? Yeah, I was there like a year ago. What is it near? I can't picture it. I want to say it's near... It's Put it in terms I can understand. Vermont and Sunset is what? The Red Station. Normandy's a small street. It's like, it feels like a one way, but there's like two whatever yeah, uh, well, it's a small put it in terms I can understand you put it in terms no one can understand anyone who knows the city will know it um, <laughs> <laughs> anyone who studies the Thomas Guide will know Robert Peterson will get it <laughs> well fine go, <laughs> hey, go, go chew a library <laughs> with Robert Peterson so the community is craving food from their homeland and here comes Zanku and even early on they had a reputation for serving some of the most natural and fresh Mediterranean food serving it fast and serving it affordably they never used cans freezers or microwaves they used no preservatives no artificial ingredients over the years Mardiros tweaked the menu and his mother continue working on the spices. She's the one basically who came up with the garlic sauce. But eventually they gathered enough foot traffic from such a wide variety of people, a diverse group would roll through Zanku. Not just Lebanese Armenians anymore, anybody mm-hmm. walking around East Hollywood stop here. That's such a specific uh, demographic if you're only if it's yeah. only Lebanese Armenians <laughs> living in East Hollywood. I imagine like the first crowd were people who are already familiar with that type of food and then it yeah. spread beyond to like people who knew those people who had it once and yeah. then I tried a new thing and then like suddenly a buzz grows around it and then everyone wants to try a new right. thing. Early on they were getting noticed by having really I like hamburgers. I'm tethered to hamburgers. I made a commitment. I signed a contract. <laughs> I mean, sometimes even sandwiches. I'm like, what is this, a hoagie? I can't eat this. Where's the patty? Uh, patty was a doctor. <laughs> Early on, they were getting noticed by having really tender and juicy chicken, which was achieved by only using a simple rub of salt and working the chicken on the rotisserie, not letting the rotisserie do the work. They were raising and lowering the heat and shifting each chicken as it was cooking. They really worked each thing. Mm, but, tr- chicken. but truly, it was their garlic paste that was getting attention. Now, they hit gold in 1991 when they got a write-up by famed 
LA Times food writer, Jonathan Gold. I'll mm-hmm. read his entire thing. It's like three paragraphs. While visiting the garlic festival in Gilroy, California. Here's what he said. I don't know he sounded like. I'm just going to do my own voice. Nothing in Gilroy, though, was as severe. <laughs> Nothing in Gilroy, though, was as severe as the Armenian garlic sauce served at Zanku Chicken, a fierce, blinding white paste. Wait, so they went to the Gilroy Royce. Garlic Festival mm-hmm. to sell their garlic sauce? Yeah, to, to, to hawk it. Okay. And then that's where they ran into Jonathan Gold. This is also the opening of uh, The Road Warrior. Fierce, blinding white paste. The texture of... Water is scarce. <laughs> Oil is king. Only the most savage survive. Only the most seasoned survive. <laughs> a fierce, blinding white paste. The texture of pureed horseradish that scents your car, sears the back of your throat, and whose powerful aroma can stay in your head, also your car, for days. A couple of drops is enough to flavor a hunk of bread. A modest schmear will do an entire shawarma sandwich. Go ahead, car freshener. My money is on the sauce. It's also good with chicken. It's famous for a barbecue chicken sandwich, which is rolled in a pita with tomatoes and enough of the sauce to make a lasting impression on the next few dozen people you meet. Zonku chickens seem to make it onto the buffet at a lot of Hollywood parties. This is what you eat at Zonku. Barbecue chicken sandwiches, excellent falafel. Shawarma carved off the rotating spit and served warm with superbly caramelized edges and sweetly gammy as the... I just had dinner and I'm I'm starving. Starving now. (laughs) As only properly overcooked lamb can be. There is a wonderful mutabal, a smooth, creamy, roasted eggplant dip with sesame top note and a powerful smoky flavor served with dusting of spice and a slick of good olive oil. The sesame dip hummus is fine and grainy and a spit roasted chickens are superb. Gold crisp skin and juicy with developed spit (laughs) it's so gross but it's making me so hungry to think about spit developed chicken flavor and the kind of bird that makes you want to scour the carcass for stray bits of carbonized skin and delicious scraps of flesh this is the Ben Max part (laughs) or hoard your favorite the rich chunk of dark meat right where the leg joins the thigh or that tender strip of running along the top you're you're blurring away and turning into a rotisserie chicken right now (laughs) Greg, I'm going to need you to strip naked. <laughs> Would you mind sitting on this pole I brought with us? Such chicken really needs no embellishment, but a little bit of garlic sauce couldn't hurt. That's the write-up from Jonathan Gold, yeah. and it re- I'm sure it sold a thousand chickens. <laughs> the words that launched a thousand chickens. <laughs> they had been gaining more and more attention, more and more positive write-ups for the food, and more and more customers. It was time to, in Mardiro's mind, to expand. His parents, once again, fought him on this but he persisted he had his eyes on opening a location in glendale because there was a huge armenian population there at this point a deal had to be made and the family agreed to split up the franchise the family which was his parents and his two sisters would retain the original zonku in hollywood any new restaurants he opened up would belong to him and he would have no stake in the original location so anything you so want to do from this beef. yeah you got to use different terminology. We're yeah. talking about chicken. You were talking about chicken. There was beef here. So it was beef in the family. At this point, there was no beef in the family. There's no bad blood. Mardiros wanted to push forward. The family Only did lamb. It. Only lamb, which is another kind of No euphemism. bad blood, just yeah. really tasty blood. <laughs> yeah, there's no bad feelings over this. Mardiros wanted to push forward. The family didn't. The garlic paste would still be prepared by his mother and used for every zanku anyways. Mm-hmm. He also decided- Just milk it out of her. Just, just, hey, listen, lady, I need you to make as much of this as possible. <laughs> Slurm it. <laughs> he also decided to have his sister, Zoe, manage some of the new stores. She's going to be working in the operations. He's going to be pushing forward. So it's 1992. The Glendale Zanku opened on Colorado Boulevard. Opening day of this new location was heavily crowded. And the success of that location led to Mardiros opening locations in Van Nuys, Pasadena, which was my very first one. Next is the Comics Factory and Anaheim. Which one's the Van Nuys one? It's not. Is it on Sepulveda Boulevard? Because I know there's one on Sepulveda Boulevard. It must be that one. The only one I know in the valley is... There's several in the valley. Granada Hills. That we went there's to. There's the one on Van Nuys, in Van Nuys on Sepulveda Boulevard. There must Boulevard. be that one. And yeah. then the other one in Tarzana or whatever. I don't know what one that is. Well, I just know more of that city. Maybe Robert Peterson knows which one that is. <laughs> he probably does. He uh, probably found it on his Thomas Guide. They're reliable. 
So now they have it all the way down to Anaheim. This little nondescript Mediterranean chicken place in Hollywood now was raking in $2 million a year, half of it pure profit. He was now living in a huge white house in the Verdugo Hills, high above Glendale Community College, which we could all see off the two and be like, who lives there? Guys who make Zanku chicken. He was living well. He had live-in servants. It's actually where I was last night for one of the Halloween haunts. The hills of Glendale? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Right next to Glendale Community College. Beautiful. That was the Donnie Darko one. Oh, really? There was that one and then there was this chicken-themed one. I didn't bother to go. I didn't go in there. It was pretty sad. His wife, Rita, would tend to their four sons. They had four sons, Dikran, Steve, Ara, and Vartkis. And as for Mardiros, he spent his days driving between Zanku locations, doing payroll, making sure the food was up to par, which I mentioned was like, I want another one. Yeah. Give me another one. <laughs> Still hungry. Still hungry. And he was just looking over operations. He was very active. Tasting in his everybody's food. Give me some of your falafel. Uh, hi, I own this. Is that fries? Uh, I don't make owner. fries. <laughs> and then the cancer hit. Oh, no. And it was pretty grim. It did not look like he would be surviving it. And now comes the other thing Zanku is known for. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Mardiros tells his family that he has cancer, and it's pretty- Is it the ketchup? (laughs) Is it another kind of sauce? Please tell me it's their spicy peppers. (laughs) Mardiros tells his family that he has cancer, and it's pretty solemn news for everyone, which is expected, of course. When the question of who will take over the family business comes up, Mardiros answers that his sons will continue managing Zankus. And this isn't official, this is just speculation, but it seemed like Mardiros' mother, the matriarch of the Zanku franchise, did not like that news. (laughs) Mardiros' sons ranged from teenagers to men in their mid-20s, and they were not... Some of them were troubled, some of them were just not active. They weren't, at that point in their lives, doing what their dad did so like they just seem like layabouts maybe if this is the reason why all this after Mardiros told his family about the cancer his mother's behavior completely changed toward him and she all but completely ignored him from that point she almost didn't say a word to him for a year they lived in the same house her son who turned a little chicken spot in Lebanon into a giant white house in the Verdugo Hills her son who's dying of cancer wouldn't speak to him his chemo was wreaking havoc on his body his, his hair fell out he lost like 60 pounds he had no strength the cancer was spread to his brain and that seemed to be affecting everything that your brain is responsible for which is everything <laughs> one day he took out a photo of him and his mother out of a frame he ripped the half of oh. that photo containing his mother and he set that little half of a photo on fire oh, pretty dramatic rotisserie style <laughs> he spun it around on us it was the spit. most delicious broken <laughs> photo it was you could really taste the tragedy <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty dramatic well after that the real drama set in when the house caught fire a day later Mirderos and his wife had to be rescued from their balcony by the fire department wow at this point his mother moved in with his sister Dzovik the silent treatment continued at this point and it just made him more emotional you know angry he was hurt he was confused and the treatments had caused a buildup of fluid in his brain which had him thinking all this crazy jibber jabber and one day in january of 2003 Mudeiros drove over to his sister's house and after this recent 2003 wow drove over to his sister's house shot his sister and shot his mother and then shot himself oh my god yeah (laughs) were they all dead yeah and that's the other thing zanku's known for (laughs) (laughs) that and the garlic sauce (laughs) it's almost epic shakespearean tragedy it's so crazy with chicken with chicken and garlic paste the remaining zanku's had to be then split amongst the children of Mardiros and Zovig because remember all the controlling stakes of Zanku died in a single day. I'm just imagining the Shakespeare production of the Zanku <laughs> chicken story. It's going to be tasty. His tastiest in years. <laughs> so the Hollywood location became the responsibility of Zovig's sons which they shared with their aunt Haigon and then they opened up another branch in Montebello. The remaining Zankus that were opened by Mardiros were looked after by their sons and his wife who was his wife Rita completely bewildered. She had no experience managing anything and in a single day while grieving for her husband and family had to become captain on the ship. She said this, I didn't have time to cry. I had to get out of bed. I buried him and 15 days later, I was running the business. I was not a working woman. I had no position, no ground, but I know how important this business is. This is what my husband built. I have to be on top of it. I am doing it for him, everything for him. Hmm. Imagine that, having to take over the family business when and you also, were just not doing anything. And also to not be like, I can't believe he did it, but like, I still love it. I mean, I, yeah, I know, know what you mean though. sick, but. Yeah, to have to ride that fence of yeah. like, I can't believe he did that, 
but to also have I, to understand that sickness made him do this horrible thing, but you also have to sort of stand by him because it, it, he it, wasn't in control. Yeah, exactly. God, to be hard. angry, but to have like a controlled anger of like, shoot. More trouble came, unfortunately, in 2006, though, when it became apparent that the 1991 split of the Zonkus could and would be challenged by Zovig's sons. Now, she lost the court battle to take sole control of the trademark. She owns the Zonkus website, which does not list the Hollywood and Montebello locations. <laughs> Mardiro's registration of the trademark lapsed mm, in our history section's kind of short <laughs> Mardiros he had registration on the trademark that lapsed in 2000 the court in 2006 decided that trademark couldn't be split and now both sides own it which from the outsider's look seems fair but then Rita's in-laws and one of her nephews countersuit alleging wrongful death and seeking tens of millions of dollars from Mardero's estate right. their lawyers had failed to file within the statute of limitations and the suit was dismissed all of this really messy and I'm not sure where really it stands today internal struggles are internal struggles with the food itself still loved <laughs> celebrities are all about Zonku. On their website, they have a photo of Jeremy Renner walking along with a Zonku bag. What? It's kind of out of nowhere, but I'm like, I get it. Like, he's an Avenger. I know why you're promoting this. <laughs> There's a Kirby enthusiasm based on Zonku Chicken Dilemma where a Palestinian it's restaurant... It's not Zonku. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's down. Al yeah. Abbas. Larry and Jeff note that the restaurant is a perfect place for a Jewish couple to conduct an affair since no one from the community would mm-hmm. be caught eating there. <laughs> it remains a Los Angeles staple known for two things, garlic and murder. Mm-hmm. That's Zonku Chicken. No, the best murders are served. <laughs> with garlic. Spread with garlic. Say what you will about what happened to us when we ate there last time but that garlic sauce it hasn't is, turned me off to it because there's a few competitors like that yeah. and some places i kind of prefer like oh i like the french fries of this place i like the mm-hmm. rice of this place i like the chicken of this place but it always comes down to you have to have the garlic sauce from zanku chicken yeah. at any of these like you, you could take it to any other mediterranean yeah. place and it would be better that was another thing i read because i feel that way about the garlic sauce but you know what i get and i treat it like it's a meal is the hummus i'll get yeah. hummus on its own it's delicious i don't need other food i could just like i'm just gonna get pita and hummus and pita and hummus dipping anything in anything like bread in anything or some form of bread like pita and hummus baguette in olive oil and vinaigrette yeah. or like chips and salsa that's all i need yeah. i don't need anything else at the restaurant i'm exactly the same way yeah. especially when i'm drinking because i don't want a lot of food in my system because i want to get drunk on two things not like four well, i'm trying to get drunk on hummus i ferment my <laughs> own i ferment my own chickpeas at home you ever make jail wine out of hummus at home I do. You ever been really bored at home and put a bunch of garbanzo beans in the toilet <laughs> and somehow it makes you drunk? That's me. <laughs> okay, so let's get, that's more of a dinner time food. Yeah. It's breakfast, baby. The it's, next morning. What did we do last night? I'm, I don't know. I'm I got drunk clothes. on a bunch of chickpeas. <laughs> I need some breakfast. When we talk about New York bagels, they say there's something in the water. But when you talk about LA bagels, the only thing we've got in the water are surfboards and tasty waves. <laughs> and it all starts with a man named Luis Ustin. We're talking about Western bagel here, by Thank the way. Thank you. Luis Ustin, who left Russia during the Russian Revolution and moved to the Bronx with his family and began to study to be a rabbi, but while he was in school, he worked at a bagel shop. Then comes the next generation. Enter David Ustin, born September 17th, 1919 in the Bronx with bagels in his blood. <laughs> you should go to that doctor that, and it's not going to be a man. <laughs> this doctor is my own mother. I can't, I can't be here. They're going to sample his blood and put some fire in it and see. There's sesame seeds in there. Uh, You're not well, sir. You might be a thing. <laughs> he started working counting bagels in the back of trucks at age That's nine. Big. Busy work. Counties and Do these all have holes? Make sure. No, that's a Bialy. Throw it out. By 13, he was working full-time in a bakery. He served in the Navy during World War II, and I do mean served. Bagels. After that, he went back to work in a bagel shop, but one day he heard someone in the shop say that there were no good bagels in California. So on an overheard preference of taste, he packed up his wife and two business partners and moved... His wife is a doctor. His business partners were actually... Uh, 
garlic sauce, whatever we're talking about. <laughs> they moved to Culver City okay. in October 1946 to open up a bagel shop to show the West Coast how it's done. The first Western bagel opened in 1947 at 324 West Pico Avenue near Staples Center. Wasn't there at the time. I bet it was. It was Paperclip Stadium back then. <laughs> That's cute. This is cute. This is cute. This was the first dedicated bagel shop in Los Angeles. Really? Yeah. The and old, what year was this? 1947. It served three types of bagels, water, egg, and salt. And on day one, water is plain. Oh. You look shocked. <laughs> I was confused for sure. So on day one of this place, according to them, give me a guess on how many bagels you think they sold. 60. Day one. According to them, they sold 57,276 bagels. I can't, I don't believe That's it. That's a joke. I, I can't believe, because they put it in terms of this many dozens and so I had to multiply that by 12. I don't understand how they could have made that many That's bagels. Not real. I, I don't know. It's weird, but hey, it's true. Them to each other? They, Did they sell it to they each kept, other? They sold it and then bought it back and then sold it. <laughs> That went on all day. That went on 57,276 <laughs> times. However, David found that the tastes in LA were different from in New York. So he started to adapt his bagels to those preferences by cooking them on sheets rather than right on the oven floor, which gave them a softer and chewier consistency than the denser, crisper ones that you get in New York. So that's why bagels are sort of different. It's not... The, it, it, it's just the way they're cooked? Well, I mean, it just became a more predominant style in oh, okay. Los Angeles than how they're done in New York. Mm -hmm. And also, it's in the water bagel. They were a big hit. Rats. <laughs> you see, when rats secrete into the water. <laughs> see, when you cook something in a town made of trash, it tastes different. Here, drink this sock. <laughs> so they were a big hit. And in 1958, they moved headquarters to their current location at 7814 Sepulveda Boulevard in Van Nuys, where it's exactly. right by Zanku yeah. Chicken. There, they were able to have a bigger factory that allowed them to go to the wholesale route and provide bagels to restaurants in town. They brought bagels to the masses in LA, which is why they refer to themselves as the bagel that won the West. Because you could reload it really quickly. <laughs> I'm out of cream cheese. David had a son named Steve who grew up being given stale bagels as teething rings and punishment for misbehaving was they made him work at Western Bagel. Secret was, he loved working at Western, <laughs> Western Bagel. He used to potty train through a bagel. <laughs> in 1985, he became president of the company and in 1993, he built them a second factory to keep up with their growing demand. So they're now capable today of producing 5,000 bagels an hour. They could sell it in an hour, apparently. See, that's what I like. They can make 5,000 an hour now, but on their first day, they sold 57 thousand of them it's i, I don't know baloney which they're not familiar with because it doesn't go on a bagel <laughs> they now serve 30 types of bagels and they aren't a huge company but it's a very local company they only have 11 locations and most of them are in the valley but they're still the biggest bagel bakery west of the mississippi david died in 1997 of cancer and he's buried at eden memorial park which is where groucho is oh cool uh he is uh bagel joke bagel joke bagel joke bagel joke bagel joke bagel joke, bagel joke, bagel joke. oh hey did somebody say bagel <laughs> but steve is still running the show and he gives a lot to charity food baskets to school and stuff like that cool. here's the most interesting part of the story the debate over one particular item on their menu in the early 70s a teenager named bruce tritman was working at the western bagel in woodland hills and as a snack for himself he would throw some sauce and cheese onto a halved bagel and toast it this became a favorite of everyone who worked there so in 1974 they started started selling them for 55 cents and called them pizza bagels. Oh my lord. However, a guy just outside Boston claims his dad also invented and started selling pizza bagels in 1974, the same year, but their style is to make a special bagel for it with no hole and put all the sauce and cheese on top. That's not a bagel. So is a bagel without a hole really a bagel or are they just wicked bad wannabes? <laughs> Regardless, Western Bagel popularized the pizza bagel. There's no debate about that. Yeah. And Tritman himself still works in LA at Deutsche Bank, so you can call him in the morning, call him in the evening, and call him at supper time <laughs> to thank him.
for what he did. Let's fight over who created this abomination. <laughs> Pizza bagels are pretty great. They're fine. I haven't had one in a really long it's time. It's been a long time. I'm proud of that. That's something to be proud that of. That is something to be proud of. You're, I don't know if you want to put this on the episode. Isn't your mom in a picture of Western Bagel? Or no, no, no. Bagel? My mom, my maternal mother. <laughs> my maternal mother is um, the Noah's Bagel. Noah's Bagel. Noah's Bagel. My parents know Noah from Noah's Bagel. Yeah. And my mom was at a grand opening of one of the Noah's Bagels and she was dancing with a guy in a bagel costume. <laughs> so supposedly in a Noah's Bagels location somewhere, there's a picture of my mom dancing with a giant bagel like in the so 80s. Funny. And I don't know where it is. We got a, a, a <laughs> pilgrimage. <laughs> pilgrimage. Every Noah's Bagel. <laughs> this isn't it. It's going to be like the beginning of Salem's Lot. Nope, we got to keep moving. I, I kind of want a bagel now. I, re- I, want a, I want a pizza bagel really bad. Like yeah. more than it, because I went recently to their main headquarters mm-hmm. in Van Nuys. And lab coat and clipboard and glasses. Yeah. What is this? Mm. Who is this? So you say you invented the pizza bagel. <laughs> so we're done with breakfast. We're done with pizza bagels. What's next on our menu? I want a meal that I can get literally any time of day from like 10 to 1. <laughs> and everybody loves it. Now, I did really staunch research. Greg has bought out a children's placemat from the place he's going to be talking about. And it's got a little timeline on here. It's I'm just going to read these five points of In, in and, and out. out. That's what our what history our research is all about. Support Christ. <laughs> Don't, oh, when we get there, it's going to get weird. I'm going to be talking about In-N-Out Burgers. All right. One of my favorite places to go. If I'm out of state place. and people are like, you got to try this thing. I'm like, well, I passed a big giant arrow on the way over here. And we're going to eat there, friend. I had a lot of help from this. There's a book, In-N-Out Burger, behind the counter look at the fast food chain that breaks all the rules by Stacey Perman. She helped, this book helped me a lot with half of the research. <laughs> In-N-Out was the dream of a married couple, Harry and Esther Schneider. In-N-Out is really- Schneider. Schneider. They're Canadian. In-N-Out is really just a simple hamburger spot. They're on print menu, very small. We'll get to their speakeasy hush-hush menu a little <laughs> later. But In-N-Out is a shockingly simple landmark burger chain. Their philosophy is simple. Serve the freshest, highest, quality burgers and fries treat your employees well and your customers even better and all while providing friendly service in a spanking clean environment that is true of every in and out i've ever been to even the one in barstow (laughs) barstow is coming up a lot in this episode i'm gonna i'm swinging hard at barstow Uh feel free to spank in any of those spanking clean you dirty dirty little boy you can walk right in harry was born in 1913 to a working class family his father henrik was a house painter and his mother mary was a house cleaner the family struggled to establish themselves anywhere in 1950 the schneiders landed in seattle they survived there for a while, but in 1922, the family moved to Los Angeles, California, right at the start of the huge population boom of the decade. It pretty much defined the decade. Did they take the same car as the C's family? Yeah, they were on the same. They got along really the well. The Canada Caravan? Yeah, the Kennedy Caravan. <laughs> they first lived in a one-bedroom house on Central Avenue in Watts. Soon after that, they moved to Santa Monica. The West Side at the time was expanding its own industries. Douglas Aircraft Company built a plant at Cloverfield. The La Monica Ballroom opened Cloverfield. up. Yeah, it's not what you think. It's not a fan footage horror movie. La Monica Ballroom opened up which we discussed for two episodes of Venice Pierce episode and the Son and Monica Pierce segment of Alias Landmarks. They might have shot horses there, didn't they? <laughs> Did they not? Did they not? Maybe. Harry's dad was by reputation bad with finances. So they didn't stay in any place for very long, but remained in the beach communities for a long time, moving from rental to rental, leaving behind a trail of frustrated landlords. His dad was even arrested for beating up a landlord who came around asking for money. What? One known place two twenty in and out. My fist inside your heart. My fist inside, <laughs> inside your, your heart. Mouth. <laughs> One known place 
place of residence was in Venice at 221 Market Street for the Curious. Harry's teenage years sound fun. He engaged in petty theft. He smoked Chesterfield cigarettes. Oh he God, sparred with gross. his friends at the amateur boxing gym at Ocean Park. He still, after this, had a sense of responsibility. He worked several jobs in the area. He was a paperboy, a grocer. He sold sandwiches. He delivered hot dogs and hamburger he buns. He sells sandwiches, doesn't he? That's such a depressing movie. They make him dance for sandwiches. Can everyone just stop and watch They Shoot Horses, Don't They? That's such a good movie. He wasn't much of a student by his own admission. He was not afraid of hard work. He just wasn't a good student. He managed to graduate from Venice High School, filming location of Greece. Briefly called himself... Interesting that he will be serving Greece. Greece. Around hot rods, which is what a feature of Greece. what they're all about. Briefly called himself a communist during his late teens, early huh. 20s. He saw the capitalist system as a total failure and felt a need for a whole new system, which would be communism. Did he like a hard shell or a soft shell Berlin Wall? How do you feel? Where do you stand he on that? He was sort of like leftist hard shell. <laughs> Economically, he was hard shell. Socially, he was soft shell. He saw his dad like struggle through working class existence his entire life. Harry did not want that for himself. With no economic prospects or proper jobs lined up for the future, Harry did what a lot of young men of the 40s did. He killed German people. Doesn't he? <laughs> Specifically Nazis during World War II. He didn't actually kill anybody. He did serve in the war doing non-combat duties. He was drafted in 1942 at the age of 29. He had a perforated eardrum, Ooh. which kept him from serving in the art. He didn't have to hide in a trench and stare at a photo of a lady in his helmet or whatever war is <laughs> lucky him he had Look. a perforated eardrum instead <laughs> how many of in the just the last couple episodes is it has it been like this guy served in the pacific i was and, thinking that too of like and then he came back and he started taco bell i think when you fight the nazis that's much more normal for like anybody like me and you could have picked up a gun like we're gonna go to germany and we're gonna bring them this crazy third reich i want a bunch of land in germany and we gotta kill a bunch of german this people to do land it land grab land grab land grab um, lamb grab lamb grab i <laughs> like mean zenku chicken it's a lamb grab every time you're in there jurassic park reference um he Where's mostly, the garlic sauce? <laughs> he mostly sat behind a desk in his records department processing B-24s. I thought that would made sense when I wrote it down, and now that I say it loud, no idea what that means. It's the prequel band to the B-52s. That's pretty funny. He was a producer. <laughs> the war's going See, on! We're, we're so not... We just display over and over again how unqualified we are for war by pointing out that the B-52 is what we know as a band <laughs> rather than <laughs> whatever it is from the military in real life. Motorhead, like Lemmy? Oh, you're talking about car. Oh, yeah. Okay, I don't know what that yeah. means then. He moved around plenty while doing service in Atlanta briefly in Los Angeles as a clerk typist for the Army Air Corps. But when the war ended... I'm a clerk typist for the library. That's like that's a different like, kind that's of like war. A, <laughs> that's like a war on your self-esteem. <laughs> when the war ended in 1945, Harry packed My up... war never ends. V-Day. A guy kisses a nurse. She's a doctor. <laughs> the day that will live in infamy because that nurse did not give consent. She was not like, who are you? Don't kiss me again. It was 1947. He was 34 working as a caterer selling box sandwiches to the cafeteria at Fort Lawton. Dropping off sandwiches at Fort Lawton one day in 1947, he delivered to the restaurant's manager named Esther Johnson, and this woman would become his wife. Esther, we'll go through her story, came from a long line of coal miners from Illinois. Another coal miner's daughter? Yeah, she was a coal miner. She is Loretta Lynn. She became a doctor. All daughters are all, doctors. All daughters are doctors. But not all doctors are daughters. Not all women are daughters. Maybe they are. Damn it. And not all men also. <laughs> we want to make that clear. <laughs> not me, that's for sure. Just like Harry came from a really hard labor working class family. A big one at that. Unlike Harry, Esther was an academic. She was also a church going girl. She was raised going to a free Methodist church. Esther was sharp. She was an honor student as well as being a member of the Glee Club, the school chorus, and the commercial club as well as being the class president and the assistant editor of the Shallow High school paper. Wait a minute. So she's very Christian. He is I guess sort of Christian. But what it's is his last name again? Schneider. Schneider. Which is very uh, usually a Jewish last name. So I'm, I'm confused of how it became so religious. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Jewish I last name. I guess I name. didn't pay attention close enough, but I know that his parents didn't speak English well and they were from Canada. Mm -hmm. Are they French-Canadian? Could 
could be, but I mean, Schneider's not really a French Canadian. Yeah, then name. I don't know. They, they could be just German. I know they moved around a lot and they landed in yeah. Seattle. And that's they where forgot, I per- they forgot where they were from. They've got an accent. You're around ships so much, you just speak the sea. <laughs> you you know? speak the language of the sea, <laughs> which is seagull. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful accent <laughs> she was modest and achieved things quietly college was a struggle though not because the studies were above her understanding but because her grandparents became ill and esther had to look after them the money for tuition was hard to come by and the time away from home was seen as a problem she eventually in 1940 after the, the passing of her grandmother went back and earned a teaching certificate she was working as a school teacher when the u.s entered world war ii and esther decided to join the war effort she enlisted in something called the waves which stood for woman accepted for voluntary emergency service yeah let's call it waves that sounds way better waves Waves' purpose was to fill the vacancies that were created when all the men went. Tens of thousands of them left to the war. Waves was not a combat group, so they weren't hiding in trenches staring at photos of cowboys or in the helmets or whatever war was. Yeah, but, punctured eardrums. <laughs> but they performed duties uncharacteristic for women at the time. Navy. Being a doctor. <laughs> That's how she became a doctor. Working with the Navy, Esther served as a surgical nurse and a pharmacist nurse. Yeah. And by the end of the war, she earned the rank of pharmacist mate second class. Esther had seen something during her service that stuck with her. No, it wasn't the burn victims. It was the West Coast. Sunburn victims. <laughs> Sunburn victims. She was enchanted by the West Coast and with another like-minded friend made the trip to Seattle, enrolling in Seattle Pacific University and working first at a laundry, but then eventually landing a job as a manager of a restaurant at Fort Lawton that would be the meeting ground to her future husband. It was here in 1947. She meets Harry Schneider, a couple married in 1948, leaving Seattle for Southern California, where our story should begin, where the Schneiders owned a bakery. His parents owned a bakery. The two moved to a thin rural area of Los Santos, Baldwin Park. For the unfamiliar, it's a long distance freeway where around the time you hit the 605, nestled between El Monte, where James Elroy's mother was killed, and West Covina, home to haunted Galster Park. Post-war America saw Americans moving away from the city to the suburbs to start families, and post-war Baldwin Park was the ideal place for working-class Americans following the American dream of prosperity on their own terms. And doing this reading, I, I don't know if it's the first time it made sense to me, the American dream just truly means being your own boss. That's all that means. Yeah, not working for anybody, not who's wor- working for who. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's just a continually shuffling, I don't want to work for you, I'm going to own my own business, and then that's you get out taco. This is the freakish capitalism that created nagels. <laughs> Baldwin Park in the 40s was orange groves, citrus orchards, vineyards, cattle ranches, and dairy farms. The PE Railway had a stop through town. In view was the snow-capped San Gabriel Mountains. But what was he from the wrong side of the taco tracks? Did we decide that that was the metaphor we were going with before? In view was the snow-capped San Gabriel Mountains, but the sun shined on that suburb perfectly. It was postcard Southern California on the verge of the car craze that would become another cultural staple of the area. The Snyders moved into a very modest one-bedroom house at the corner of Vineland and Francisquito. I never say that right. Across the street. It's Lebanese. It means a river. It means that bell. They were across the street from the Baldy View trailer park. This somehow matters. Mm-hmm. Around this time, Harry had an idea. Some call it a dream. In my opinion, you could look back at any success of the order point and call it a dream goal. You can't do that with a failure, though. But at this point, because he didn't know what was going to happen, I'm going to call it an idea. Harry <laughs> had an idea. He watched his parents shuffle from job to job his entire, his whole life. He didn't want that. He wanted the American dream to be his own boss. He wanted to open up a little hamburger stand in Baldwin Park. Everybody's ticket to success Uh, is a hamburger stand. I'm going to open up a little thing right here. (laughs) You know what? This might be a crazy idea no one's done before. I'm going to open a hamburger stand. But with this little hamburger stand came a pretty innovative idea. The shack they were operating out of was small. So small having a restaurant was out of the question, which wasn't even a thing at the time. When you said shack, for some reason I immediately thought of Shaquille O'Neal and then you said small and I was like, that's not... I did a search for In-N-Out Shack and I was like, did you mean In-N-Out Shaquille O'Neal? No <gasps> stupid idiot. His first location was a little Shaquille. Uh, <laughs> having a restaurant was not even a thing at the time anyway, so like just to open up a counter, basically. Mm-hmm. He wanted a place where people could get sandwiches and go. Before you lose your poo, In-N-Out was not the first drive-thru. That 
that award goes to Red's Giant Hamburg in Springfield, Illinois, off of Route 66. But this was only a year before, 1947. In-N-Out might be, in fact, the second drive through mm-hmm. location, but because Red's closed in 1984, In-N-Out is now the longest-running drive through Really? Okay. Even before McDonald's? Yeah. McDonald's might be older, but they didn't have a drive through right. That drive-ins? I think it was more like a car hop. Mm-hmm. Apparently, like a Sonic's, which is the oldest of everything. The oldest, it's this is the, the oldest place you can get food. <laughs> Jesus Christ with his disciples, the apostles. Upon the Mount of Sonic. They wanted fish. He turned water into shakes. <laughs> Apparently, there was also a place in town on Sunset in Vermont called the Pig Stand, which some consider to be the first drive-in restaurant opened in 1932, but that's a drive-in, like I was saying, closer to a car hop, and it was actually Texas-born eatery. It wasn't a California thing, but they had a location in Hollywood. Anywho, drive throughs I can't imagine Red's was such a hit that on the West Coast, people would have heard of it. So I imagine in the first year, it was just seen as a gimmick. So I assume Harry Schneider came up with the idea, I want to say, almost independently. First, in his own mind, that kind of matters to me. But Harry Schneider and Red's giant Hamburg were on to something. Car culture was pushing society's eating habits forward, and the next step in the evolutionary chain after car hops was drive throughs uh-huh. Southern California was the most heavily motorized place on the planet. By the 1940s, there's over a million cars in Los Angeles. Five automobiles for every four families. The auto boom meant people were opening up just like any little eat-on-the-go burger and hot dog shack stands. And to attract these speeding customers, these little stands and shacks had to grab their attention the more outlandish the possible. This was a sort of like googie and keech architecture boom that we like a giant tamale that sells not, not tamale kitsch. kitsch the schneiders were not this sort of like googie and kitsch architecture people they were modest they wanted to open a modest little stand they would have a hard time competing with that but they're gonna give it a go with financial help from a man named charles nodded harry schneider was able to open up his little burger stand he also got advice from a fast food pioneer carl n karcher who had built a small but growing chain of hot dog stands in los angeles he called it you know, carl's Jr.? Wait a minute. Did Carl's Jr. start in Los Angeles? It just says that they, he had a location Maybe in Los Angeles. Just, Maybe it was okay. not. A, Carl's advice, among other things, make people feel special. And I kind of like, when I read that, I'm like, well, that's corny. And then I read the and rest of it. be sexy about it. Make them feel special with the biggest breast <laughs> you've ever seen. And they're spilling ranch dressing all over it. Ooh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. what sells food. So it's October 22nd, 1948, 70 years ago today, the day we're recording this. Today right. is the 70th birthday mm-hmm. of In-N-Out. The Schneiders Weird. opened up their first burger joint across the street from their house on Garvey Avenue. It was in Baldwin Park. In Baldwin Park. It was a modest low sling box with on a small lot. Another philosophy of Harry's was to serve the freshest food. His nephew explained that his uncle wanted to take the lettuce out of the ground, the tomato off the vine, and the onion and the prepare the burger fresh right bun now. Straight off the tree. <laughs> Go to the bun tree, get it. The original menu was hamburgers twenty five cents. Cheeseburgers, which were invented in Pasadena at the right spot, mind you, mm-hmm. were thirty cents. Fifteen cents for the French fries, ten cents for soft drinks. Yeah, you know, I feel like the those ratios of price is still the same. Like cheeseburger is 4% Four, more expensive yeah. and the French fries is 20% as much as this. It's a formula that came up with by Carl's Jr. Um, first <laughs> if mod- you add all those percentages up, it equals 69 because it's <laughs> Carl's Jr. Harry came up with a name for his modest little hamburger stand that people would eat and go and he called it eat and go. No, I'm just kidding. Call it in and out. He called it Taco Bell. <laughs> Taco Bell. <laughs> Their early motto was no delay. That changed. What is it now? It's That's what our hamburger is all I about. Know. I think it's just drive through. <laughs> Next customer. That's it's their motto. Their motto now is half the Bible. I'm just kidding. They don't, <laughs> I, they don't, don't do know that. Three sixteen. <laughs> they had a red neon sign with elongated corners while block letters and stripes posted by the side of the road. This is not the one we're thinking of. It was the original sign. On their first day of business, they sold a total of 47 hamburgers to each other probably. <laughs> During their first month, they sold 2,000, bringing in around $1,100. Harry created, yeah, and he created, like I am keep saying, he had like a strong philosophy behind all this. His philosophical formula that would become the operating principle
principal in and out quality, cleanliness, and service. Harry was known for being a fanatical about the quality of his food. He would visit meat suppliers to check on beef purchases and watch the butchers cut up the beef and make Ooh. sure he got exactly what he paid for, which is pain. <laughs> pain about Is he it. suffering? Good. <laughs> Good. That's what our hamburgers are all about. <laughs> he was also a clean freak and he did not want his customers picking up food from a sloppy looking burger stand. In and out, more like immaculate and out. He also didn't like sloppy burgers. He developed a system for building burgers. The sacred sauce was spread generously from the bottom slice of the bun to prevent it from running off the ends. No drip except on the paper wrappers. Mm. Grilling burgers, it was minute on one side, two minutes on the other as to not lose the juices. Gotta cook some fries up. Cooker was kept clean and floating pieces removed quickly. Salt was to be shaken while holding a container at shoulder length to ensure evenness. Mm. Buns were lightly toasted before the beef and the onion were added and each burger received two slices tomatoes that simple <laughs> only those don't be an idiot just, be, just, do, it. just do it only those tomatoes that fit five wide in a specially designed box were deemed the right size it's so weird that as you're describing all of this like i can taste each ingredient yeah like the slightly the toasted onion. bun the yeah. edges of it are a little crispy the fresh lettuce everything yeah. yeah i can feel my teeth going layer by layer <laughs> to the until they meet the other teeth and like did these put teeth in there only my teeth <laughs> is this on the secret menu <laughs> can i get the burger that eats me thank you <laughs> to help with this idea of no delay in an service harry put up his amateur electronics enthusiasm to the test and created a truly innovative device in the field of drive-through food he doesn't even really get credit for this the two-way speaker was a creation from harry really? schneider yeah he came up with this and he came up with the idea to speed the process of ordering up however in 1948 people new to the speaker box had no idea what it was or how to work it properly <laughs> they it. and they thought it was a communist witch sent to record your eating habits and sell it to the ruskies they had no idea what this was so schneider's had to get a face on it i think they had a go outside and just like you're talking to the box and then my wife could hear you in that box <laughs> is that why there's still people out uh... yeah probably it's still it's an homage <laughs> i don't know what that entails but i imagine it sounded like sci-fi to everybody <laughs> at the time harry schneider doesn't really get a lot of credit for that as i said and in fact dave thomas founder of wendy seems to think he did it in 1971 Please. you idiot <laughs> you dumb southern boob you didn't you invent country bumpkin you didn't even invent anything down by the watering hole <laughs> i also invented squares also tacos <laughs> i'm so sorry to every person with a southern accent that we <laughs> refer to as dumb I'm, i apologize sincerely just individuals yeah <laughs> just dave thomas esther referred to in and out as the granddaddy of drive throughs and i agree it's certainly california's first modern drive through in the beginning it was the schneiders who did everything in the burger stand they prepped the patties they peeled the tomatoes sliced onions sliced tomatoes they stirred up the secret schneider sauce which would <laughs> delicious del- you want an extra schneider sauce it would take harry years to perfect this and boy do you is want it perfect you want harry schneider yeah. sauce harry schneider secret sauce harry ran the gas grill esther was in charge of the books they worked grueling punishing hours at in and out <laughs> but it was paying off the locals lined up outside of this modest little shack they were incredibly popular at the trailer park across the street people there were like i don't really feel like cooking in the trailer and they would just go to in and out every night so not only were they capturing motorists going in and out of los angeles yeah. in and out they were also capturing people who lived in motors yeah also they got foot traffic three years See, we don't just make fun of southerners <laughs> we make fun of rubes in california too people who remind Mind us of Southerners. I'm so sorry. We don't mean it. Audible wink. Three years later, in 1951, the business had established itself as a must-stop, must-eat burger spot. In-N-Out had long lines of cars snaking into streets, even in 1951. That happened today when I was getting food. It's 19- always it's always, always like I that. Mean, By this point, they had employees working a small shack with too many customers. The employees, which might have been just 
two teenagers one to two teenagers had the in and out look well-groomed hair clean white shirt red aprons didn't come onto the scene till 70s paper cadet hat that was the look even back then there we have a hat right we have here. a hat right here i'm wearing it you're not wearing it <laughs> lie to everybody i want to say i'm cool all right but you're not wearing it i've been lying you're not wearing it you're dave thomas he took carl from carl's junior advice to make people feel special and by having truly polite employees that was his ticket smiles for the customers whether it's genuine or great acting i watched a california gold when hill hauser went there and that was when it clicked like oh yeah you know i've always had really nice service at in and out i haven't had like a rude person it's a weird cool thing well it's if you treat your employees not poorly when you happier. if you pay them fair wages they'll smile <laughs> if you pay them enough anyone will smile <laughs> pretty early on he hired only male teens i think there was an opportunity to hire a female employee in the well, because stand. they didn't want to be operated on by their mother the hamburger <laughs> i can't cook this burger. this burger why not this burger is my mother <laughs> Harry didn't want female teenagers working in there, not because he thought that they couldn't do the job or they didn't belong in the workplace. His wife was a great worker. He was afraid of In-N-Out becoming hanky-panky hamburgers. Oh, no. He was afraid of it. In-N-Out. No double-double here. And I know that In-N-Out is also sexual innuendo, but any chance I have to say hanky-panky, I'm thinking it. <laughs> to rename this place Whoopi and Whoopi. Around this time, the early 50s is when the hot rod craze of suburban LA went around. That's when that whole scene would just go around LA cruising and they would need late night burger spots. And In-N-Out was there for them they stayed open till 1 a.m even back then so in and out in Baldwin park was a local hangout for hot rodder dragsters drag racers drag racers rolling on the raceways of australia gas guzzlers looking for the hope the hope that is harry schneider's secret sauce <laughs> i'm just happy to add mad max the lexicon of movies we reference it's about time <laughs> our palette is expanding <laughs> it would become like a hangout scene they would go they'd park their hot rods they'd listen to the radio they eat burgers until harry scared them away because he didn't really like them but that was the scene uh -huh. anyways but yes in and out was blossoming just the right time yeah. that dragsters and surfers were coming around. And that's to sort of a, an era they've tried to stay apart. They yeah, they're trying to, to capitalize yeah, on that. Living in that past for a long time now. I, every time I see a shirt with like it's a hot rod and it's like yeah, a yeah. airbrushed background, I'm like, I want yep. that shirt. I, I know exactly what burger I'm going to yeah. get. Hey, this looks like a shirt made by the Harley Davidson company. I'd like, I like this. It seems like my dad's teenage years. I'm going to eat that. <laughs> my dad's first in and out experience wasn't very late and he said the, the closest one to him was there was Baldwin Park one but all his friends because they would cruise Van Nuys would go to the one in San Fernando off the five it's like not Pacoima or Silmar it's like it's there still I know which one you're talking about yeah I don't know if that's San Fernando that's that's what is that? I think that's more if we are thinking of the same one I think that is Pacoima Pacoima right yeah. I feel like it's Pacoima because that's that long stretch there then you see a bunch of Richie Valens stuff oh, yep, boy that's Pacoima <laughs> <laughs> they were capitalizing right at the right time and they were just sort of fusing with these like Southland archetypes like they were just like Pacific POP was coming at the same time as surf music and surf culture it perfectly fused together. Perfect timing. Around the time, they updated their logo from the red logo to what we now know. It's the long yellow arrow with the rectangle panel underneath reading in gothic lettering, In-N-Out Burger. Iconic. By this time, the burger stand got noticed by the Hollywood elite who would stop by the burger stand on their way to Palm Springs. That was the only road In-N-Out to get to that side. Dinah Shore, Debbie Reynolds, Eddie Fisher, Lucille Ball, who <laughs> was probably eating a burger when the Japanese were sending messages. <laughs> Bob Hope was a huge In-N-Out frequent. Bob Hope's 92nd birthday in 1995 was catered by in and out Oh, God. Snyder's never wanted to build a chain or empire, but it happened. In 1951, they opened up their second location in Covina. And by the next year, 1952, they opened up three more. Laverne, West Covina, and Pasadena, stretching the Laverne. franchise... Laverne! Laverne. Stretching the franchise across the San Gabriel Valley. But as business expanded, a relationship began to sour, and that was between Harry Schneider and the financer Charles Noden, the man who helped give the money for the original location. Schneider was happy with his output and weary about expanding. Noden wanted to increase prices and cut costs, which was 
is what all the fast food franchises were doing at the time. But Schneider was stubborn. So by 1952, the two agreed that they could no longer agree and they split their partnership as well as they split the existing stores. I don't really know who kept what. I think Harry kept the name in and out and three of the stores, including the original location, not in went on to open another burger chain in Pasadena. What Harry learned from this was to stay independent and to not share in and out with his, that was his baby. The Glenn Bell way. Yeah, do not share this thing with an outsider. Oh, and speaking of babies, in the early 50s, the Schneiders gave birth to a son whose name was, they should have gave it a minute. He prefers to go by Guy. His middle name was Guy and he took his father's first name. Harry Guy. Yep. Harry Guy Schneider. Yep. Perfect. Harry Guy Schneider sauce. <laughs> I don't want to eat that. The next year they had another son. You know, son. a guy can't be a doctor. <laughs> that guy can't. The next year they had another son, Richard Allen. Something though was coming and it would change Baldwin Park and the original in and out forever as well as the natural landscape of the entire state. And it was the 10 freeway, the <laughs> Interstate Highway. 1954, the 10 freeway was built and it was cut through right through Baldwin Park, forcing the Schneiders to tear down the original stand and rebuild a new one at a short distance. That's a shame, yes, but the freeway would promise more travelers that would be stopping by. Schneider once again innovated drive through with the creation of the double drive through which I personally thought was a new thing, but that's, I, I thought it was at least 10 years old, but that was a thing at the original in and out or that. Oh, I know it. Yes, yeah, some yeah. of them have that. If you're wondering if the 10 freeway was built over the original shack, it was, and the Schneiders lived across the street and their house was there. They also had a move. But don't fret, the Schneiders were now wealthy enough to move from Baldwin Park to San Dimas, California, home to Bill S. Preston, Esquire, and Theodore Ted Logan of Bill and Ted fame. In the movie, that's where they're from. Uh, that's where they took Genghis Khan and Abraham Lincoln to Raging Waters. I was going to ask which uh, water park was it there? Raging it was Waters Raging or Hurricane Harbor? It was they're both owned by Pepsi. It might be true, actually. It, it's actually Sprite coming out. <laughs> it's Pepsi Crystal. <laughs> it was the mid-50s, post-war America, and they had now achieved the American dream. They created a business. They were their own bosses. They had a house in the suburbs of Southern California with two children. That was it. The Schneiders had made it, but they were not slowing down at all. They continued working hard on their modest little hamburger stand, and by 1960, they expanded to seven in and outs and then the 60s hit. Huh. Could we cue on White Rabbit from Jefferson Airplane for this segment? Get Grace Slick on the phone. 1961. To fulfill a customer's request, a burger was prepared. <laughs> a burger was prepared that cooked mustard along with a patty and was assembled with extra additions, pickles, extra secret Schneider sauce, or spread as we'll call it from this point on, and grilled onions. Now this is referred to secretly, I mean, when we shouldn't even be saying this here. This was the first animal style burger. In the 60s. 1961. It was made for all these animals on their dragster cars. They want all this extra sauce. Give me burgers. Yeah. <laughs> in the 50s they continued perfecting their image and all these things we sort of now know them for and I know I never gave too much thought about how cool it is but there's a lot of little things about In-N-Out that do make you feel special there's the secret menus there's the will you be eating in your car placements there's different colored palm trees for the different types of cups the drive through wall windows so we could see the team cook because they believe in transparency these are all really cool I voted on that did you? more transparency in In-N-Out what do you think I was talking about? <laughs> I don't, I don't. You, you I, seem like I just duped you. I must have thought that there was an in and out vote and you were involved. I want to see all the guys doing fire with body cams. I want to see body cams. I want to know what's guys. happening in those areas I can't see. Schneider took Carl Jr.'s advice and he made every customer feel special. And it's all these little tips and tricks to in and out that are so neat. In the mid 60s, double doubles were added to the regular menu. That's two patties and two slices of American cheese between your buns. There's also a three by three and a four no. by four. 
You used to be able to order as many patties, cheeses as you wanted, but some dipstick fudged it up for everyone and ordered a hundred by a hundred. And now the limit is a four by four. The hundred by a hundred cost that bozo. We'll call him Icarus. It cost Icarus $97.66, 19,490 calories. <laughs> so whatever happened to him, I hope it hurt. But you could also order a different company. You can you order- better hope his mom's a doctor. You can order a four by two or a three by two, anything you desire. If you say the word cold, it means you prefer to have your cheese not melty. Ew. And yeah, you know what? Let's take the time to go through the sacred hush hush. Okay, good. Radio. Because I'm, I never know what it is. There's a lot more of them in the list. But Do they I'm have gonna, gorditas? You can ask them. <laughs> um, they'll probably make it. Can I get a gordita? gordita. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trained to say no, but no. I thought this list was containable, <laughs> but it's seemingly not. There's a website that's like 29 awesome items on the secret menu. I'm like, is there more than 29? So I'm going to read this. Go ahead and cue Benny Goodman's Sing Sing Sing, which is funny enough what I was typing to just randomly. When the, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Dun, 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 you know, dun, dun, dun. boom. Animal style can be applied to any burger or fries. It's the spread, cheese, and grilled onions. The secret secret for the animal style fries is to order the fries well, meaning they cook the fries longer Ew, and they get like crunchy. Like but they get crunchy. They won't fold under the shape of the animal style additions. They won't go soft. They'll like stay hard. You're stupid. The <laughs> Flying Dutchman is two slices of cheese melted between two meat patties. No buns, no tomatoes, no lettuce. Ew. So it's just you're holding meat? Yeah, you're holding meat and cheese. Stand there with a, my meat in my hands? Everyone looking at me? <laughs> Grilled cheese is everything you love about getting a cheeseburger without the meat patty. Vegetarians love it. Vegans hate it. <laughs> Protein style. A regular burger with lettuce replacing the buns. Watch right. out, kitties. This thing is cold and wet. You can also order a side salad, which is a double-double wrapper full of produce along with some spread to use as dressing. You can order a veggie burger which is just lettuce doubling as a meat patty but you get your buns a wish burger is a toasted burger with lettuce and tomato you can add the usual onion spread and pickles it's a toasted well, i don't understand toasted like the bread i is think really the bread crispy? is yeah the bread is crispy you can say fries inside and you get fries in your burger are you kidding me you could say you that you didn't tell me this like six years ago <laughs> you can order cheese fries you can yeah. say light which means undercooked fries i don't know what that's about a scoopy snack okay. is a single grilled patty it's great to give the little doggies when they're on the car with oh, you. That's bad for them. Nothing in it's bad for you. There's ways to customize your burger. Some people order mustard fried patties, which is like they fry mustard along with the patty. I thought that's animal style. I thought that too. I don't I, I don't know the difference, but this one isn't animal style. It's just mustard along with the patty. You can customize your burger with chopped chilies as well. People order burgers medium rare, fries well done, whole grilled onions, chopped grilled onions. You can order a Neapolitan shake, which is the three shakes combined. You can get a root beer float. Really? Mm-hmm. Half a vanilla shake with a half a root beer. You can get a black and white, which is just the chocolate and vanilla mm. they come in a different colored how cup. come they don't have cherry coke we've talked about this like they need to have cherry coke there we've gone there specifically we've, craving cherry coke, coke and they don't have cherry they coke it doesn't make any though. sense i'm not saying like handcrafted cherry oh. coke just, just import like, cherry brand, coke yeah pepsi brand cherry coke they're never gonna change these people don't change <laughs> they'll never change that was a much needed detour let's get back on track in the timeline it's mm. the 70s and the company is thriving they continue developing their brand which is still coinciding coexisting with southern california culture in 1971 the irwindale drag strip has been getting more popular due to the car craze. Harry has made an investment in 1965 in the raceway and now is paying off because the burgers were sold at concession stands to racers and fans, further fusing in and out with the car craze. It was almost like eating in and out meant you liked cars. Yeah, it's a statement. It's a statement. No, it's a different kind of statement. Which is, I'm so hungry. So it's 1972, and I don't know why this is my favorite fact of the whole story. Harry Schneider was a huge fan of the comedy movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, oh. which involves every actor you've ever seen looking for buried treasure under a cryptic clue under the big W. And it turns out 
spoiler alert, skip ahead if you don't want to hear this, it's buried under four palm trees that resemble a W. And because In-N-Out was a Snyder's treasure, there's a tradition that some In-N-Outs to have the twisted palm trees planted at the location, which is some next level Allie Meekly stuff. Yeah. And that's like us having a DeLorean. It's kind of corny saying that In-N-Out was Snyder's treasure and he crossed the palm trees to allude to that, but he also just thought it looked cool and it does. It's, it's a very, cool look. It's a relaxing sort it of look. It is. 1976, Harry Schneider passes away after a bout with lung cancer at the age of 63. How many, how many cancers in this one episode? Too many. <laughs> at the time of his death, there was 18 In-N-Out locations across the South Line. He did that. He was buried at Forest Lawn in Covina Hills. Now Esther takes over and it comes time to make one of her sons the heir to the animal style throne. We know this doesn't go well. But it doesn't go to the firstborn guy who was a bit of a rebel. He was a bit of a car guy. A little bit into the drugs of the 60s and oh, 70s. No. The title of the president goes to the younger and more conservative son Richard. It must have been a huge blow to a guy who was given the title. It was like a throwaway title executive vice president. Friend. Pal. Brother of president. Frequent in and out eater. <laughs> uh, Esther continues on as a secretary. Birthday boy. <laughs> <laughs> Esther continues on as a secretary treasurer as well as being the controlling stake in the shareholder. Richard has a vision for expansion of his father's company. It was his idea to build the executive complex in Baldwin Park, which is still there. He moved the corporate office to Irvine. It was also his idea to add Bible verses to the in-and-out items such as cups, fry boats, and burger raptors. Rappers. <laughs> Slow down. Hang on. Do not, do <laughs> yes, not this jump on, on this. the secret menu. Do not jump on this. Damn it. I know better. I know to not do that. I should never say that. I should never say freeze. Clever grill. <laughs> God damn it. They never freeze, Ian. They're patties. I, 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 I know better. Don't flub like that. A flux capacitor. Oh, no. Back to Richard and his Bible verses. His pastor at the Calvary Chapel explained that hamburgers are so popular. He thought it was a great idea to awaken people to the fact that the Bible is relevant and has answered for today's problems. The soda cups cite John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The milkshake cups cite Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall directly thy paths. And the water cups are stamped with John 14.6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And to all this I say, fine. I don't understand. I mean, who are you trying to, you know, like if it, you put those, you're just putting the numbers. It's I not like, like you're putting all the words. I'm not going to see the numbers and be like, Oh, I'm going to go look that up. Like if you know I, what those numbers means, you're already I in. feel like that's the point is to make somebody look it up okay. and then it's the exact thing they need to read that day and they're like, oh crap, I got to buy uh, my own Bible now because well, they have the nice. library. <laughs> yeah. I'm not opposed to it. in and out has a lot of things that I'm like a little bit taken aback yeah, and then I'm like, you know whatever. what? Second thought, I don't care. I mean, it's not like it's stamped on the burger. Yeah, exactly. You, you can, can actually, you customize it. <laughs> you can get it profit style <laughs> and it, it's stamped <laughs> with a Bible verse of your choice. And it's made with holy water. All of this is awful. Not to my religion. To go back to saying things that I'm a little bit taken aback by recently they was found out that yeah. in and out was donating money to the republican party and people were like what's that about and then like well we actually donated money to all the parties and we're like clever is that what happened they yeah and that's the thing about in and out they seem really fair but when you're there at two in the morning they're like hey we're trying to close no, how is this fair, fair? <laughs> how is this fair you gave a hamburger to that republican over there <laughs> through the rest of the 70s and 80s the store continued to expand and change in seemingly small ways but they were huge to them they opened their first in and out that has a dining room for customers that was in ontario california a few years later they opened the first location that has a drive-through and a dining room that was in placentia i always think that place is called placenta i wrote it down i wrote don't 
say placenta. Don't wake placenta. <laughs> I hate that game. In 1984, at a spot where the Schneider's home once stood, Rich Schneider opened up the In-N-Out University, which is where they train entry-level managers to be able to properly manage a In-N-Out. And by the way, In-N-Out is known for paying their employees fair wages, not minimum wage. They have a reputation for treating their employees very well. As far as I've heard, I've had a couple cousins who work there. They have no complaints. The company store, also in Baldwin Park, same complex as University, opened up in 1985, and it's the real deal. It's choice. Socks, classic shirts, the best coffee mug I've ever seen in my life. I got my girlfriend the air fresheners that don't smell like, unfortunately, they don't smell like food, but they're shaped like the food. Uh, and now she just what has- they smell like? Like cinnamon and like, well, I don't know the other ones. I don't remember. But like, cinnamon. they look like the items. Mayo. They're, it's like a little cutout of like a burger and yeah. fries and it just hangs. And it, every time we see it, we're like, well, I guess we're going to In-N-Out. They have really <laughs> great merchandise. In 1990, the first In-N-Out opens out of state in Las Vegas. And it's what I like to call the California Embassy. In 1993, Richard Snyder, the president of In-N-Out, dies in a plane crash during oh. a descent into the John Wayne Airport. And the relationship with his brother Guy was not great. But the day before, the day before the crash, Richard attempted to reconcile. Guy had been living up in Northern California. He had a daughter named Lindsay Schneider. He also unfortunately had a drug problem still. When Richard died, Guy assumes the position of chairman of the board and Esther becomes uh -oh. the president. The store continued doing its thing. They opened up a Westwood location, which was the closest that an In-N-Out has come to becoming gooky. It was designed by Stephen Kanner. We know the one. That's yeah. the one next to Improv Space. Under his watch, In-N-Out gets 140 new locations. He's also known for creating the Flying Dutchman. That was his invention. Yeah. Sadly, Guy passes away in December of 1999. He has an overdose on painkillers. Weesh. I know. Esther, who now lost both sons with no warning, was alone running this burger empire with her granddaughter, Lindsay, who was now getting more and more involved in day-to-day -day operations. Woman inherits the earth. <laughs> Gosh, darn it. <laughs> Lindsay continued to gain more and more traction in her family's company and soon managing her own locations as time went on. She says that there was two attempts at kidnapping her maid. What? The first was in high school and the second happened when she was managing a location. She said she spotted a potential attacker due to their boarded up van and ran across the adjacent freeway to escape them. Since then, she's been incredibly private. Oh. I mean, weird. I would kidnap a daughter of a million dollar fortune. Yeah, yeah, that's what I keep with this lotto drawing that's coming up. I keep thinking like, if I make a billion dollars, everyone's going to kidnap my family. Family. Yeah. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And you won't pay. No. I know you. I only have a billion dollars. <laughs> what am I made of money? <laughs> what, I win the lottery? I read a book on Getty and he didn't pay. He got it in your back. <laughs> in 2006, things were getting rough. There was a longtime vice president named Richard Boyd, who I didn't hear about until this story. He was suing in and out for breach of contract, torturous interference with contract and defamation. He claimed Lindsay and her second husband were attempting to wrestle away control from the elderly Esther and had forced employees to attend Bible studies and pray at meetings. Whoa. The company immediately sued back. It was not looking good. Lindsay had to go out and defend himself like, I love my grandma. I, well, I don't, none of this <laughs> stuff is true. Esther died later that year, 2006, the last person who had seen the original in and out right. of the family. She managed, though, when she died to keep the family lineage alive through her 24-year-old granddaughter's involvement. She was now 24 years old. Snyder's modest little shack has now expanded to 310 locations, and I believe four non-California states, Ohio, Nevada, Arizona, and Texas. In 2010, it became official. Lindsay was the president of a billion dollar company she plans on keeping in and out in this schneider family never planning to took her that long <laughs> I just bought one lotto ticket. She wants never plan on franchising or to turn into a chain. She controls all the right. things. She never wants to take it public. She said this. The only reason we would do that is for money and I wouldn't do that. My heart is totally connected to this company because of my family and the fact that they are not here. I have a strong tie to keep this the way they would want it. In 2014, they opened up a replica of the original Baldwin Park stand in Baldwin Park. It's like what the shack originally looked like. It's 10 square feet. The original menu with the original prizes standing proudly outside the shack. They continue growing and expanding locations and menu items in January of 2018. This year, a new menu item was added. 
hot cocoa. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You better believe that the news treated this like it was a royal birth. <laughs> Every news station was like, can you believe it? And Did you stay yeah. up for the announcement? <laughs> Weren't they talking about adding like bacon burger or it, something? It was, I didn't see that. On the table at some point. I remember at some point reading that like bacon won't happen, but that was a good. It was an article from a long time ago. The Schneiders wanted to create something special with their burgers and they did so much more than that. So much more than a unique fast food experience. They created Southern California lore. Yeah, it's weird. It is nonstop making fun of people from Los Angeles. And they're like, going to talk about in and out now. You like in and out better? I love it so much. When people come out of state and they're like, I have to try it and they don't like it. I'm like, well, you did it wrong. You didn't do it <laughs> this right. This is on you. Yeah, this is on, this is on me. It's you. <laughs> Your taste buds are dead from whatever what city you What a is so from. much better. It can't be. They're stupid and ugly. I mean, we both have, probably have nothing but good experiences at yeah. In-N-Out, but it's a really good hamburger yeah. and it's a really good price. Yes. Like you're not going to get that anywhere else. Yes. What a burger here or water burger as water they burger, say. Five yeah, guys. It's like a water bagel. Yeah. But yeah, five guys exactly. Like a few, a year or so ago, someone announced that five guys is the best hamburger it's place not, in it's town. More expensive, it's more expensive and it just tastes it's not like, good. It's not good. It just tastes, it's good, but it's good in the way that like I'm at a barbecue my uncle made me a burger right. and it's juicy. Like <laughs> it's not like anything special. Nobody I know can make a In-N-Out burger. Yeah. It's well, like, Hey, life hack of Los Angeles. Maybe I should save it. Maybe you should save it. I'm going to save it for a future episode. You're going to ruin that billion-dollar corporation. You're going <laughs> to turn them do. down to a million-dollar corporation. You walk in there, slip on some water. Life hack. <laughs> <laughs> Never pay for a meal again. Life hack. Life hack. You want to go to college? Get hit by a city bus. They'll pay for everything. Join don't, the military. Don't want to deal with student loans? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go fight in World War II. That's how you do it. I actually just wanted to sign up to fight the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, you got to go to Orange County for that. Huh? Booyah! 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 He's hiling. Uh, so, so now we're we're done with in and out it's time for a different sort of dinner second dinner for us this is actually a similar company to in and out which is it's, it's good Whataburger. that we're doing it it's, yeah. it's Whataburger <laughs> let's get right into this I'm going to be talking about another homegrown classic Panda Express you're crazy my dinner of the night you're never going to get away with it could I get a double order of orange chicken and then instead of rice or noodles just another double order of orange chicken no then stick them up this is a history lesson that's every order of me in high school. Can I have all the orange chicken you have? Yeah. All the room in this piece of styrofoam can just be orange chicken, yeah. right? So, of course, this very local of story begins in communist China. Jesus. <laughs> 1947, Andrew Cheung is born, Jin Chan Cheung, outside of Yangzhou, but his family needed to get away from the revolution. So his dad, Ming Tsai, which, by the way, there's a pretty famous chef called Ming Tsai, and they keep referring to him as Ming Tsai, and I was like, is this the guy that I used to watch on KCET <laughs> who's 40 years younger than his son? <laughs> yes. Something's it is. <laughs> That's communist China. <laughs> his dad moved to Taiwan to get a job as a chef to make money to move his family out of China. But by the time he had earned enough money to send for them to join him in Taiwan, China closed its borders. So oh. he couldn't get him out. China closed its doors. No. They put up a hard shell taco. <laughs> no more. So his mom made the very scary choice of leaving the country without her baby, Andrew, because she was being smuggled out in the bottom of a boat. And she was afraid the crying would give her away. But before she left, she hired a smuggler to smuggle her baby out of the country when she was gone. So she left her baby in the hands of a smuggler. This is how Han Solo, this is, this is, Han, this is Solo. Yeah, this is how Solo starts. We could look back and be like, how could you do that? But like, yeah, I what get it. What else can you do? Yeah, what else can you do? It took three attempts, but it finally worked. That the baby fa- kept crying. Stop <laughs> giving us away. Get back in there. Yeah, Try again uh, next try again. week. The family was reunited in Hong Kong, and from there, the family moved to Yokohama, Japan, where his dad got another job as a chef, and Andrew eventually grew up to get a scholarship to every Chinese person raised in Japan's dream school, Baker University in Kansas. <laughs> I dream of this. We have to go there. 
there. So in the mid-60s, Andrew, he moved away from his family to Kansas. And as a freshman, he met a girl named Peggy Siang, who had her own escape story of her own being born in Burma and raised in Hong Kong. And it must have been that shared childhood trauma that they could barely remember that drew them together. <laughs> and they started dating and have been together ever since. Wow, really? Yeah. After Kansas, Andrew followed Peggy to the University of Missouri, where she got her PhD in electrical engineering. He got his master's in applied mathematics. A lady doctor. Peggy was more into academics than Andrew was. And on summer breaks, Andrew would go to New York City to wait tables because something in his blood was calling him into the world of restaurants. Insert whatever dated joke about MSG you were planning to spew out of that. It's not dated. Note. This is fresh stuff. I wrote this dated material yesterday. <laughs> so after he graduated, he left Peggy behind to continue getting her degree. She was still getting her degree. He came out to LA in 1972 to work at a restaurant his cousin owned called Ting Ho. It was in Hollywood. He was apparently also involved with the Plum Tree Inn in Chinatown, which is a restaurant I used to go to a lot as a kid, but not in the 70s, so who cares? Yeah. At Ting Ho, he was working seven days a week, but he didn't really get along with his cousin, and he always wanted to run his own business, so he managed to convince his dad, the chef, and his mom, the mom, to move to LA to help him open up a new restaurant. So they agreed, and he took out a $60,000 loan, and he borrowed also money from the cousin he didn't like, and on June- You gotta do it. You gotta do it. <laughs> I know we don't get along much, but can I have $50,000? So on June 8th, 1973, the Panda Inn opened at 3488 East Foothill Boulevard in Pasadena mm-hmm. in an old coffee shop, and he had his whole family working in it for him for free. His dad cooked, his They're mom- turns. <laughs> this will go to your college credit. <laughs> You're much younger than me, father. His dad cooked, his mom cleaned and made rice, and Andrew was the face, and he ran the business end of everything. It was called Panda Inn, because pandas were a big deal. It meant bell. Uh, they were a big deal in 1972 when Nixon visited China. He broke down, he broke through the hard shell, and they were seen as a symbol of union between China and the United States. Okay. So it was pandamania. Yeah. Pandamania. <laughs> However, at the time, most Chinese restaurants in the U.S. were just serving chop suey and other system of a down song titles. But what, <laughs> but what Panda Inn was doing were dishes like we now know Chinese places to serve, which at the time were a deeper dive into Chinese cuisine than most people were willing to take. So business wasn't good at first, but his mom enacted an old Chinese tradition and put a bunch of salt on the sidewalk and miraculously, a couple people came. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but, the food was, birds. But, but the food was good. And since there were so few customers, Andrew made a point to treat each one who did come like royalty because he was afraid they'd never come back. So one customer at a time was how he was going to grow his business. His dad always taught him, don't take on a new challenge until you've mastered the previous one. And this was just an extension of that. Be really good at serving each person. So one small step at a time, slowly word got out and more and more people started coming. If all the tables were full and he saw people leave because they didn't want to wait, he'd run after them in the parking lot and offer them a free drink until a table was ready for them. So now the business was going well, but Andrew was still missing his sweet Peggy. Once she finally finished school, she also moved to LA where she got a job at McDonald's, Doug- no, at McDonald's. Yeah, McDonald's Competitor. Yeah. <laughs> McDonald's hamburger and aircraft division. <laughs> McDonald Douglas and later at 3M, she was designing computer systems to launch missiles. Okay. And in 1975, they got married and had a kid. No but, different kind of but missile. But she was, <laughs> he figured out how to launch a missile, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but in 1981, Andrew's dad died, but the business had to go on. And the next year, they opened up a second Panda Inn location in Glendale that's now closed. But around this time, they also had a second baby. She's still open. And Peggy decided to quit her job designing missile programs and come do the accounting at Panda Inn with her husband because it gave her more of a flexible schedule yeah. to be with the babies and also business was going pretty good so you, you know. could leave a job exactly missiles. this yeah. but then they were offered something that would change everything no it wasn't a free sample of sesame shrimp. 
A customer of theirs named Pat Donahue was a big fan. He also had a very LA family with one brother, the head coach of the UCLA Bruins, and another brother was the developer of the Glendale Galleria. Really? Now, Pat knew that his brother was looking for more restaurants to put in the food court at the Galleria, so he approached Andrew and asked if he might be interested in putting a faster, casual version of Panda Inn inside their mall, and it took some rethinking of their business model, but Andrew felt he had mastered the sit-down restaurant, Mm. so now he wanted to give fast food a try. So in October 1983, the first Panda Express opened in the food court of the Glendale Galleria. I now get why it's called Express. Exactly. So it was pretty popular, and two years later, they opened up their second location in another mall at the Westside Pavilion. So now Andrew started getting an idea, much like what Taco Bell did for tacos, what McDonald's did for hamburgers. Why can't he do for Chinese food what Taco Bell did for tacos, what McDonald's did for hamburgers? He wanted to make Panda Express the McDonald's of the East, but on the West. (laughs) This was actually perfect timing because leading into the 90s, Mexican fast food was starting to lose its exotic appeal. Yeah. Because are you breaking your fingers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're making me hungry, so I'm breaking my hands to calm myself down. (laughs) To prevent myself from chewing on them. (laughs) So Mexican food, you know, like, yeah, we've had that. Yeah. They wanted something newer and exoticer and Chinese food, just the thing. Mm -hmm. So they started opening up more locations, all of them in malls, because that's where people were looking for fast food the most. They were doing well, but they had a secret weapon, Peggy. She shot missiles at them. (laughs) Any competitor? (laughs) Suddenly they blew up. I don't know how. (laughs) Mysteriously, a missile hit them. (laughs) She knew computer programming very well. So she took Andrew's vision of a worldwide Chinese fast food empire and built software for their restaurants to use around that. So they became one of the first fast food places to be using computers to take orders in the 80s. And not just that, she set the computers up to track what was being ordered and what was popular and what wasn't and to automatically pre-order any ingredients that they were running low on. So this kept- Yeah, insane. I know. This kept them well-stocked at all times and it gave them unprecedented insight into what people liked, what people didn't like and what they should take off the menu. So this gave them an edge that they needed over all of their competitors, of which there weren't really that many because making Chinese food is a lot harder than making a hamburger or yeah. a preformed taco. And doing that in a fast food capacity is even harder. Mm-hmm. But they were so efficient with their computer data and they were so unique that it worked and nobody could touch them. Chinese food is also more expensive to make. So to keep the costs down, instead of treating their employees unfairly, and paying them less, they would just cross-train them all to know how to do everything in the restaurant and get the most out of fewer employees. Okay, that's almost a perfect model. Yeah, Yeah. it is. Uh, Actually, I'm a perfect model. (laughs) Look at my abs. (laughs) (laughs) Then they had yet another stroke of genius. In 1987, nuggets were all the rage. Um, The the nugget mania? All (laughs) that footage of screaming teenagers? Yeah. When the nuggets peeked their head out of the Plaza (laughs) Hotel? When the nuggets performed at Chase Stadium? I couldn't hear anything. It's Sullivan was eating nuggets live on television? And now, straight from a chicken coop that I once saw on the freeway. Nugget mania, this drove up the price of white meat chicken. So a Taiwanese French trained chef at one of their locations in Hawaii named Andy Cow decided to start buying dark meat to save money because it was cheaper than everyone's getting the white meat. Let's go the other route. With the dark meat, he modified some Chinese recipes of orange flavored chicken Hmm. and made it a little sweeter, battered Hmm. it, fried it as a variation on General So's chicken to appeal more to American and Hawaiian tastes. The original version had a bone in it, but once they got rid of that, the orange chicken was born and it became their most popular item and they now sell over 90 million pounds of it a year. (laughs) All bought by me. So armed with smart computers and sweet chicken, they were off to the races. All races, that is, because they were a runaway hit. By 1992, they had 97 locations. That same year, they started to fear that someone might come along and have a Japanese version of what they do. So to prevent that from happening, they started their own Japanese version of themselves in Bloomington, Minnesota called Hibachi-san, which has a few locations around the country, but Mm -hmm. I've never heard of it. So I guess the Japanese threat wasn't as credible as they thought. Lucy. In 1993, they celebrated their 10th anniversary with a location on the UCLA campus. 
campus near that in and out oh. which brings us to a new phase in their plan which was getting away from being only in malls because they could see that the golden age of malls was already over and yeah. they didn't want to be another sad fast food place next to Cinnabon so they started branching out mm-hmm. I'm sure her computer software told her to leave Sabaro's getting close <laughs> must evacuate <laughs> launch missile <laughs> no 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 universities like UCLA was one path 1993 was also the year of their first freestanding location in LA's fast food test ground Barstow California <laughs> it was tougher getting people to come to the freestanding locations because you no longer had the captive audience of a mall but they made it work because they stuck to their plan that they had from the very beginning up until 2000 that whenever a new location would open they had have a crew from experienced locations come and live together for a month in an apartment near the new one to make sure everything went smoothly wow. and to build this team mentality which wow. sounds miserable if you don't get along with somebody it yeah. does <laughs> so they also became the first fast food to open up inside of a supermarket when the president of Vons, who was a fan of theirs let them open up inside the Vons in Arcadia they opened up their first two airport locations both at the Denver airport in 1995 then they opened their first library location at Central Library downtown here in oh, 1996 right. and then their first sports arena location at Angel Stadium in 1998 2001 was their first theme park location at Six Flags Valencia so they kind of morphed from sit down upper scale restaurant to mall food court to casual order at a counter sort of place so they kept changing what they were only 2% of their locations are actually in malls today still and they're huge obviously 2007 was their 1000th location back where it all started in Pasadena 2011 was their first international location in Mexico City take that Taco Bell they now have over 1800 locations in the US Canada Mexico Japan South Korea Saudi Arabia the United Arab Emirates Guatemala and Aruba making them the biggest Chinese fast food chain in the United States and I'm gonna go out on a limb and say the world the busiest location of them all is at the Ala Moana Center Food Court in Hawaii. They never use MSG. Some of the recipes are still from Andrew's dad and they're one of the biggest broccoli buyers in the United States. Yeah. Last year, they bought 21 million pounds of it, creating the biggest stink cloud this country's <laughs> ever seen. They test out new recipes at the Innovation Kitchen in Pasadena that opened in 2014, which is open to the public at 3867 East Foothill Boulevard, mm-hmm. right near the original Panda Inn. Mm-hmm. So they, they try out weird flavors and things like that, which I want to go to. Yeah. In 2016, they came out with the Chork, a chocolate stick fork but the two people still behind this all are andrew and peggy they were put in the california restaurant association hall of fame in 2005 and today they're worth over three billion dollars that's like three lotto tickets for me (laughs) that makes peggy the 11th richest self-made woman in the united states good for you peggy they have identical offices on opposite ends of their headquarters in rosemead for feng shui purposes they've managed to get that rich because they own all of the panda expresses out there there's no franchising allowed this allows them to maintain quality control and consistency throughout all the locations they could go public just like in and out so much more money they would have but that would mean a loss of control and they don't see the need to make more money than they already have which leads me to the next thing they're both just really good people it (laughs) seems their main focus is on having happy employees because they believe that will lead to happy customers also more so than caring about the food they seem to care more about that their employees are well taken care of like everything they're talking about seems like you care more about people than food (laughs) Andrew says that the way you do anything is the way you do everything so if he can get them taking care of themselves they'll take care of others as well he pushes all of his employees to try to better themselves in a very self help but genuine kind of way the company offers a lot of motivational and life improvement seminars for all their employees exercise classes all employees are required to be part of the panda way program it encourages learning and being healthy and teaching you how to have better personal relationships with people applicants for their job have to read the seven habits of highly successful people before they're interviewed andrew says when you have a good set of people and they're in a good place inside and out in and out 
in their livelihood and who they are, then chances are they will take care of the customer better. Peggy, meanwhile, started the Panda Cares Foundation in 1999, which has given over $83 million to children's hospitals and disaster relief. They adopted a panda named Pepe in Chengdu. That's the ideal way to treat everybody. Yeah. Or, or at least treat your employees and then with the idea that it's going to spread further. Like that, a that's poison. Nice. Yeah, like a poison. The poison of kindness. They bought a panda? Yeah, we bought a panda. Andrew's teaching does trickle down to Peggy's philanthropy because all employees have the option to donate a part of their paychecks to charity mm-hmm. and 90% of them do Wow, of all employees. And they feel comfortable doing that because the employees are actually treated well, which is shocking as we know for a fast food place this big. Their pay is higher than minimum wage. They get vacation and sick time. If you work there over 30 hours for more than six months, they'll pay 80% of your health insurance premiums Whoa. and 50% for your dependents. If you've been there over six months, they'll also help pay for part of your college tuition, but a lot of people actually just stick with the company because 70% of the management positions go to people already in the company. Although a few years back, they hired a former Taco Bell executive as president. There's lots of stories of people who started out as dishwashers who didn't speak any English and they're now regional directors and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I've eaten a lot of orange chicken in my day and I still don't have a PhD. (laughs) You almost got me to be like, should I do a part-time job at Penn Express? I was thinking the same thing. Like, I wonder if I go back to school. Yeah, (laughs) I get work at Panda Express (laughs) at the campus. I used to love Panda Express and then I had it like five years ago and it wasn't very good mm-hmm. and then I had it again tonight just to see it was pretty good it smelled good I mean, you sold it because you kept going oh my god I kept saying oh yeah thank you Pepe <laughs> it was never like a staple of any situation like if we were around when we'd go to it I ate it a lot because like I said I haven't been there in a while but when I went there tonight like my instincts kicked in of like I want to order this yeah. this way this and this and this like I knew what to do yeah I should get more you're selling it to yeah, me you I should, should eat more fast food I mean I do a lot already but that's a get out of your car place but hey here's something you don't have to get out of your car to do leave us a review on iTunes it's the that time of the show best review you ever left anyone yeah. leave it to us uh, leave us some stars some words if you have an iPhone just open the podcast app and do that it helps people find us more it makes us more visible it gives us more social cachet on the internet do that it really helps out a lot and we, shut up and you, okay and we also would just appreciate it if you did that on top of everything else it'd just be a nice thing for us yeah so it would thank be nice you. we give you so much we give you so much give us a I granddaughter and you're going to say you can't leave me a review? That's fine. <laughs> Don't do it for Greg. Do it for me. So then also follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly, on Instagram, LA underscore Meekly. Like us on Facebook. We uh, have a Tumblr page, lameekly.tumblr.com. It's which got is the like archive the there. Main hub of the thing. a YouTube channel. You can watch everything. We have live videos. All of yeah, our live shows are on there live now. Videos. Email us at la.meekly at gmail.com. If you, you have any suggestions, comments. If you, ideas. if you work in an interesting place in the city or know someone who does, email us. We can come down and interview you for an episode. Support us on on Patreon, we have some nice things going on there. Sending some more stuff coming out this week. More stuff uh, will be coming soon. Closing thoughts on this hungriest of episodes, Greg? I'm still hungry. It's so strange to me that so many places culturally different so with culturally places, diverse so food open to Pasadena. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Everyone kind of like tested the waters out in Pasadena for some reason. It's almost as like someone opened some sort of portal to hell there. <laughs> so yeah, we hope you have a nice Thanksgiving. If uh, Hey, if you really don't want to do it, you go to one of these places have a nice thanksgiving have a nice holiday we'll see you uh in december for our scary episode get ready for creepy christmas it's coming the first one in a couple years where it's in studio in studio and this is a studio believe me yeah uh Uh richie will you turn that down (laughs) okay all right we're you can clean we're we're leaving we're leaving right now so uh that's been yet another episode of la meekly why the chicken crossed the road because she's been a doctor since 2013 not sexist jazz Makes sense earlier. <laughs> <laughs>